This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Welcome to another installment of our special series on the Trans Health Summit. Um, A note to say that if you are listening to this on a podcast platform, um, I highly recommend stopping until you can actually uh, listen to it on YouTube. A lot of the audio uh, in this recording is quite muffled and difficult to hear, um, so we went ahead and actually transcribed the uh, a lot of the questions and answers that happened inside this conference session, um, <clears throat> and that's actually in a lot of se- in a lot of cases uh, kind of mandatory even to understand what's being said is is to read along. Um, that said, um, because so much of this audio is, is, is quite muffled and, and, and kind of almost frustrating to listen to at times. I was very tempted to exclude uh, much of it, but for the sake of continuity um, and just full transparency, um, we've left it all, all the audio intact. Um, but if some audio is just too grating to listen to because it's all muffled and, and difficult to hear, feel free to skim past or just press mute and read along in the in the transcript that'll be on the uh, subtitles on the screen in front of you. Again, on YouTube, I highly recommend not, not listening to this uh, in podcast-only uh, format. And one other note, this is a, a longer-than-normal uh, episode. We're pushing Rogan length at uh, about 2 hours and 45 minutes, so uh, it might be an investment, but it's very, very illuminating. Uh, into how um, uh, uh, activism has um, completely uh, infiltrated uh, all corners of the um, uh, professional medical institutions. Um, Thank you very much. And without further ado, here's the APA. Psychological Association, guidelines for the psychological practice with uh, transgender and non-performing people. Um, and I will let each of my colleagues to introduce themselves, but uh, I'm Rodrigo Guayo, um, I'm a scientist at Wilmot Walker Institute and one of the co-chairs, uh, and um, all of us are part of the team that has been, the task force that has been uh, revising the guidelines, and we'll be going into more details about um, the process of revising the guidelines. And one of the things that I do want to mention uh, as we begin is like, uh, we're gonna go over uh, the process itself of the revision and then uh, also share the current version of the wording of, of the of the guideline. Uh, but we definitely want it to be more interactive. So as we go through that, we want to be able to answer questions and get any feedback from you all. Because one of the things that we definitely want to get is feedback on how to improve the, the version that we're working on. Uh, and we'll talk about like other opportunities for it, but this will be a good place uh, to start with that dialogue. All right, thanks for hanging with us, folks. Turns out tech problems are uh, an issue. So, uh, but we got it, we're here. Um, and I'm glad that you all are here and that we're having this awesome conference together. Um, we're excited to share this stuff with you. The original guidelines uh, for working with trans folks was published in 2015. And so part of what, um, the goal of the guidelines. Um, 
What we're really trying to do is talk to psychologists about what to do um, to provide culturally competent, developmentally appropriate, um, and gender-affirming psychological services. We also know that these guidelines, the, the guidelines and APA, and anything that comes out of APA also gets used by other organizations, and so we're aware that um, although we are writing for psychologists and APA, that this is also guidelines that will go out to um, so many other organizations that look to APA for some of that guidance. Um, they're uh, built with the idea that this is not for just for beginners and not just for advanced folks, right? But like across the, um, the levels of experience that people might have, that psychologists might have, um, that we're really trying to write with all of those levels of experience in mind, which you can imagine um, can be tricky, right? To figure out like how do we speak to all of those different levels of knowledge. Um, in terms of the evidence base, we are uh, looking at existing literature and professional consensus and opinions on best practices. However, we also know that literature, uh, as we've seen today in all the various talks, is skewed, is flawed, is missing uh, various populations. And so as we're pulling from the literature and putting in all these pieces um, to say what is the state of our science, we also are aware that our science is flawed and limited. So. Uh, we're holding all those complexities as we're moving through this process. So, um, and the, the guidelines itself are uh, to be used in partnership with other treatment guidelines uh, and standards of care, such as the one with the endocrine society or the WPATH as standards of care. Uh, so in a way that they're supposed to complement each other, that's one of our goal. Uh, and usually, uh, there were scheduled to expire, I mean, are the guidelines for uh, trans people and gender non people were scheduled to expire in seven years rather than the 10 years that usual, the usual guidelines take uh, because the knowledge base was developed rapidly. So that's, that's why we're doing it uh, in a different time than the, the other APA guidelines. Uh, and just to go over, like there's a, when it comes to the APA uh, process, there's a difference between the standards and guidelines in which the main difference is that guidelines are more aspirational and uh, while standards tend to be like more or less like rules to be followed. So in, in this case, even something to keep in mind, even in the language that we're using throughout the guidelines is in a more aspirational in nature rather than like, directed, let's say. Uh, and another difference between uh, APA has guidelines for practice, psychological practice and guidelines for the treatment, treatment guidelines. The main difference between those two types of guidelines is the treatment guidelines focuses on specific diagnosis, while the psychological practice guidelines focus on a specific population. So this guidance in particular is focused on the, on the transgender population. I'm a little bit taller. <laughs> um, so there's only four of us here today at this particular conference, but this is an 11 member guidelines task force. Um, and there was this intentional process of considering who would be on the guidelines task force having people from all across the United States, um, having the majority of the members identify as trans or gender diverse with a range of gender identities across our group um, and a range of ethno, um, ethnic and racial backgrounds with sort of um, purposefully making sure that different voices are at the table. Um, our work began in the summer of 2021 and there's planned completion in September 2025. So this is a pretty long process. It's a very iterative process. Um, it's been complicated by what's going on, the reality of like the political situation and how that sort of interfaces with the research and how we're talking about that. Um, so, you know, we have our own process of developing guidelines um, through revising it, but also there's going to be these spaces of then gathering 
outside professional feedback direct to what has been written. And then there's going to be a process of community feedback, both going to particular stakeholders, um, and we're going to have an open period where people can leave comments. Um, and today, at the end, when we have Q&A, we're going to be writing down what you tell us um, and sort of thinking about you know, how we can be intentional and make sure that everything that needs to be in the guidelines is going to be in the guidelines. Hi, all. Um, Dr. Jake Eliezer, um, he and pronouns. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about the feedback process. Um, so as Elliot mentioned, uh, this is an iterative feedback process that's going to be happening continuously over the course of the guideline development. Uh, this process is going to specifically include a two-month public comment period. We're hoping that that's going to be happening in August to September of this year, so please um, be aware of that, be looking to APA to get notifications about that. Uh, that's when we're going to be doing our broadest uh, uh, public comment collection period. Um, anybody can offer comments. They don't have to be a psychologist, they don't have to be an APA member, anyone can offer a public comment during that period. Um, we're also doing community feedback sessions, and so those are going to be targeted to make sure we get a diversity of voices um, and feedback from specific uh, uh, members of the, the trans and gender diverse community. Um, we're going to be doing feedback during conferences, so we did this at APA and at WPAP last year, um, and we're hoping that this is going to be an opportunity for that as well, so we really encourage you all to please ask those questions. Is like something stuck in your craw about like the last set of guidelines. We want to know about that um, because it's really important to, to everybody on the team to make sure that we get this right. That's why we're taking the time to do it. Um, and then the last piece is APA stakeholder group review. Uh, it'll be an aspect of that component as well. We'll be asking uh, folks who have specialized expertise um, across trans health to offer specific feedback in areas of the guidelines as well. We're playing with the musical chairs. Uh, last time we did this at WPATH, we each had a little microphone and we just got to sit there and chat. Um, and so we will we'll bounce back and forth. I also realized that with all the technical stuff, I came up here and just started talking. But I'm Jay Leonard Garcia. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm happy to be with you all today. Um, so a look at our current draft. Um, there you go. So we have a few guiding frameworks that are cutting across all of the guidelines that we're going to be sharing with you today. And those are intersectionality and minority stress. And so, as we've heard at this conference uh, quite a few times, nice reminders about intersectionality, not just the intersection of identities, but the intersection of our oppression and our lived experiences and where we intersect with our privilege and our oppressed uh, parts of who we are, but also the way that power and structures inform our lived experiences. Um, and then minority stress, we know that uh, because of intersectionality, because of the stressors that folks face, depending on their marginalized identities, right, we have different kinds of um, stressors, we have different kinds of health outcomes, and so that is, uh, minority stress is its own section, but it's also woven through, both of these are woven through the entire structure of the, of the guidelines. Um, we also have a deeper inclusion of non-binary non identities um, than we did in the 2015 version. Um, we're also using trans and gender diverse rather than uh, trans and gender non-conforming. Um, you know, we know that language changes at a rapid rate, and so this is kind of where we're at now, this is our spot, but I'm guessing that in seven years when these get updated again, it will be different, right? So this is kind of our, um, our best catch-all for, for our terminology for now. We also are um, intentional about recognizing the role of the historic harm that's happened for trans folks and non-binary folks and gender diverse folks um, within the psychology profession and outside of it. And so really, um, 
not shying away from it and not running from it, but, but being intentional and saying, hey, this is the state of our field. This is what psychology has done to trans folks. And here are some ways that we really need to think about moving forward. So, um, so yeah, that's a, a big piece of what we're doing as well. So a look at our current draft. So we have five domains, and within each of these domains, there are various guidelines. And so we'll share each of those guidelines um, for each of the domains, but these are the main five that we have going on for now. So we have foundational knowledge and awareness. So really making sure that people have the, the base level of what they need to know about uh, gender and trans folks, uh, minority stress and resilience. And here um, we'll unpack this a little bit more, um, but really this intentional focus on resilience and joy and, and not just all the harmful things, right? We have a lot of damage-centered research happening. And so um, how do we also center resilience and, and strength-based approaches? Lifespan development, as you can imagine, that the current um, legislative agendas across the country that we've been hearing all about, um, lifespan development is tricky to write about right now when so much misinformation is happening. And so we are digging into the science. We are, um, we are being very careful with this area to make sure that we are presenting gender-affirming care the way it needs to be presented across the lifespan. Okay. Did you hear that? So, so basically they're saying we need to be very careful with the science to make sure that gender medicine is presented the way it needs to be presented, right? Like, like basically it's important that, that the narrative is shaped in the way we want it to be shaped is essentially uh, what they were saying right there. Is that what you guys heard as well? Yeah, and a, and a brief acknowledgement that the science is is quite poor. It, it, I want to take advantage of the fact that we do have a, a pediatrician here. So, is it? It's my understanding that in order for something to be called guidelines, it has to follow certain criteria. And one of those criteria is that need they need to do a systematic review of the evidence. Is that is that correct? Well, I think it depends somewhat on on who you ask. Um, I think there certainly has been um, an effort in the last couple decades to to ensure that um, medicine is based on evidence, right? And evidence-based guidelines have become very much uh, what we try to do as much as we can. So, and then there's standards of evidence, right? And so um, there are ways of, of determining whether uh, what purports to be evidence actually meets certain certain standards. So um, I agree with you, Erin, that it, it seems to be that what they're saying is um, we'll look at the science and it is flawed and limited, but, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily need to keep us from drawing conclusions and, and moving forward. Um, that was my impression of what they said. And even in the the five domains that they've started describing so far, it's it's clear that there's an ide ideological lens in the just because of the language that they're using. You know, they're using words like intersectional and really prioritizing this concept of lived experience over science. You know, like framing science as science is uh, you know and a part of an oppressive system. And what really matters is lived experience. And so we want to kind of apologize for the science and the damage that science has done in the past. To, and we want to prioritize 
the lived experience. So the, the, there's already that that framing, right? Which is a very much a critical theory or queer theory framing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big right. emphasis on oppressor versus oppression, and yeah. Mm -hmm. And along similar lines, when evidence isn't available, they rely more on, um, as Diane Aronsoft said, clinical experience, right? Or consensus as um, as opposed to actual um, data based on studies. So. And the clinical expertise is now filling up with people such as these task force, right? These are, you know, probably 20 somethings, maybe early, early, early 30s. Um, clearly their, their perspective is very much one of, yeah, critical theory. And those are, so those are going to be the experts or the clinical experts, you know, weighing in, in the absence of the evidence are very, um, yeah, ideologically, uh, minded. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if that's part of why they're not terribly concerned about the, the low quality of evidence, because, when you frame everything through the lens of critical theory, which which devalues science anyway, because mm -hmm. you know if you see science as just an, a tool a tool of the oppressor, then it's almost immaterial if your science is flawed because they're trying to downplay the importance of science anyway. If they're not prioritizing science as the guiding principle, they almost see it as as a thing that gets in the way of doing social justice work right right or or something that can be used as a tool like if it's good if it's in their favor then it's good and it can be used but if it's not then it's disregarded and it's um yeah it's, it's in the way um, right but which I, is why they i guess made a point to say that um the majority of the members on the task force identify as transgender or gender non-conforming because that apparently you know, having that perspective is more important than, you know, having a strong basis in science, right? You need that, per you need that lens in order to, uh -huh. to get the appropriate uh, outcome. Yeah, they, and they later on in the talk, they'll, they'll, they kind of go quite into detail with that, almost kind of semi, not really arguing, but semi one going, you know, we're relying on the, you know, this is about science, it's not about us, it's about what the, you know, what the evidence says. And then the other one's saying, yeah, but we know the evidence is flawed and it's basically, you know, historically oppressive. And and then they're kind of like saying different things at the end, and but like kind of almost going into what we're talking about right now, but kind of contradicting each other. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting um, session. Yeah. Do I did they go to... into at all? Because I mean, they touch on the fact that they're saying that that the field of psychology has done harm to the trans population in the past. Do they, do they ever kind of go into any depth and explain what harms they mean exactly? The implication is just gatekeeping. Is that is they challenging ever somebody? Out? No, 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 they do not. It, it's supposed to be like later on in the session, I ask the question about basically, is there going to be anything that's going to ultimately uh, be able to let clinicians you know, an actual roadmap for assessment. And um, they're very clear that that um, basically what I'm describing is gatekeeping and that that's completely, affirmation is, it, it's built like through the, the, the whole the whole 19 guidelines right here. And, the, and they'll go into um, more detail about that as well. But basically if it isn't just about immediate affirmation, 
then it's, then they didn't take it into consideration when writing uh, these guidelines. And so they're yeah they're very clear that it's that anything that isn't just believing somebody is what they say their gender is and then helping them access whatever medication they want in relation to that gender, anything other than doing that is is an act of transphobia. Is what yeah kind of spoiled the whole. <laughs> Not really. I, mean, I guess we kind of kind of uh, uh, suspect the, the the framework here. But um, uh, oh, before we went, I, I was going to say something else about something that they were saying in the beginning there that I wanted to call attention to. Well, while you're back thinking of that, um, I just wanted to call out what one thing that I noted that they mentioned is that they're going to apparently open things up for public comment. And so your listeners may want to watch for that. He said in um, August and September of this year, maybe via the APA website, that would be a good opportunity to weigh in. If nice. Very, very good call. Very good call out there. Okay. All right. Should we just uh, crack on? Sure. Yep. Clinical practices, including assessment, therapy, and interventions. What have you done? Um, welcome. Uh, and then also education, research, and training. And so across these five domains, um, we'll get into the various guidelines that we have in, in each of these. Thanks. All right. Um, so our first domain within the guidelines, this sort of starts off the whole document, is foundational knowledge and awareness, um, exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> So the first guideline is, um, and I'm going to read all of these for accessibility purposes. Psychologists respect the gender of all people and do not pathologize transgender identity, gender diversity, gender fluidity, or gender expression. Um, and so some points included in this guideline would be the recognition of gender diversities as part of the human experience. Um, and that clinicians are treating the problem that a patient brings in and not their identity. So. Um, if you've heard the term trans broken arm syndrome before, I know a person comes in for a broken arm, they're like, ooh, how's that related to you being trans, right? That can um, crop up in psychology as well. The second guideline is psychologists understand TGD people are diverse and recognize the intersectional way that gender is experienced. Um, so that gender is a non-binary construct that labels, um, like has, has been said before today, are widely varying, they evolve, and they are understood in a particular cultural context. And so to think that one cultural context, you know, knows everything about gender and it's always gonna be that way, um, is just not true. Um, gender intersects with other identities and structural systems of power, such as race, ethnicity, ability, etc. Um, and therefore the solutions for trans health disparities include recognizing overlapping structural oppressions. The third guideline is Psychologists practice cultural humility by recognizing the limitations of their knowledge regarding TGD care and engaging in learning as an ongoing process. Um, so this is both that clinicians should strive toward sort of the classical cultural competence, increasing your knowledge of TGD people and their care needs, being connected to those communities, um, but also what happens when we don't know everything, you know, which is gonna happen, right? And how do we respond to that in a non-defensive way in a culturally humble way um, and recognize a person's lived experience. 
The fourth guideline is psychologists recognize the historical legacy and ongoing harm of pathologizing TGV identities and commit to providing gender-affirming care. Um, so this is a response to what Jay was mentioning earlier, the harms towards trans and gender diverse people in the field of psychology. So for example, gender identity change efforts or popularly termed conversion therapy. Um, professional organizations like the APA have recently released resolutions and statements sort of condemning gender identity change efforts. Um, and so how do we repair those relationships with trans communities and commit to providing effective care that doesn't um, our clients. All right, so next we have the minority stress and resilience uh, guidelines. And so here we have four that we've outlined, um, really thinking about systemic factors, distal stressors, proximal stressors, and then also resilience. So I'm going to also read them. Um, so psychologists recognize how systemic factors and socio-political context influence mental health and take steps to ameliorate structural stigma. And so I want to make sure that we call in our psychologists and our ethics of advocacy and of pushing against uh, inequality and systemic um, oppression. And, and this is where we're doing it, right? So where we're saying, hey, we know that the lives of trans folks are affected by systemic factors. We know this to be true. We also know that sociopolitical context matters for our mental health. And psychologists have a role to play in helping to ameliorate some of the structural level stigma. So we're here we're really trying to call in our psychologists to, um, to be advocates, right, to, to push for this change. We also know, or psychologists recognize the role of distal minority stressors that impact the mental, physical, and psychosocial health and well-being of TDG people. Right, so here we're thinking about discrimination, victimization, prejudice, the interpersonal pieces that people experience that we know affect um, health, mental health, and, and psychosocial outcomes. The next one, uh, psychologists recognize the role of proximal minority stressors on the mental, physical, and psychosocial health and well-being of TGD people. So here we're thinking about the proximal stressors, which are when we internalize all that negative stuff that's happening out there, and then we internalize it and think and have the shame response, right? Um, concealment, um, feelings of if I go into a space, I'm going to be rejected, expecting rejection. So we know that these proximal stressors, when we take on what exists in society we take it on for ourselves that it really negatively affects our health and so um, here we're really thinking about how psychologists can notice that and help to ameliorate some of those pieces and finally guideline eight psychologists recognize the unique strengths and resilience of tgd people and take steps to bolster resilience and positive outcomes so here we're really thinking about how do we move past this deficit damage centered narrative about trans people um, and folks pitying us or or think oh every time i think about trans folks all i think about is the pain and the trauma and how hard it is to be trans like hold on there's also a lot of joy like i love who i am right and i have a lot of euphoria and a lot of joy and when we can sit with community and be in community and not be bogged down by the first three right that we have lots of joy and resilience and resistance against these oppressive systems and so um, really making sure that psychologists are not just using a damage-centered framework, but really thinking about our joy and our, our awesome narratives that can exist when everything else gets out of the way. I think we should just kind of unpack those two, those two um, uh, domains there that they just went through, the first one being foundational knowledge and awareness. And I, in there, they kind of uh, basically answered those questions that you had, Aaron. It's like, what you know, what are these harms that they're referring to? And, you know, uh, anyway, but um, they're basically saying, you know, 
that well, and also in the minority stress and resilience in both of these, they're basically just saying that psychologists will be queer theory activists. That's essentially what these guidelines are. Um, and they're also they're also saying they come right out and say they will commit to providing gender affirming care. So mm-hmm. as that's currently um conceptualized i mean you just take everybody at their word so right there um you know that's uh what you're supposed to do so it's really hard for me to square that with um the role that i think of what psychologists do to try to step back and think about the whole person and what's in their best interest within a context and and right here the, the the um and do not pathologize gender right there in that very first sentence they're basically saying do not discuss gender dysphoria because that's what people when people talk about right. pathologizing transness or pathologizing gender they're talking about discussing or addressing gender dysphoria and that's what they're immediately saying you know this is about somebody's unique beautiful gender identity and not about any sort of psychological condition they might have. So, right, right. I knew that the, my question was going to uh, be just completely contradictory to everything that they're already saying in here, but um, I had to do it anyway. And Sorry, it's, it's, so, it's so, well, just that it's so deceptive and, and sinister too to imply that anything other than completely aligning oneself with queer theory is somehow a harm and a, and a violence against trans people as, as if there's no other model for social justice and there was no, no such thing as compassion or social justice prior to the 1990s, right? Like, unless you, be, you know, believe in this orthodoxy of ideas called queer theory, you're a bigot. And, and they're weaving that into, you know, guidelines and professional practice and and federal and state and provincial laws codifying queer theory and in, into these things uh, and and and, imp- and the implication being that in, unless you fully buy into queer theory you're therefore a hateful bigot and doing harm to somebody mm-hmm. it's an optional academic uh discipline i mean you go go to university you can choose to take queer theory classes or not and and it's, it's so it's alarming to me that it's no longer considered optional anymore. It's it's now mandatory education for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. That shift is so fascinating how that happened. Yeah. I also find it so baffling as a physician because what I find sometimes is young people, you know, I have a patient sitting in front of me and I we don't have any common ground, right? They come in with this idea of who they are and I don't even know where to start to question it. And so from my perspective, um, you know, I'm not a surgeon, but, you know, obviously a lot of these surgeons that uh, perform top surgery or or other gender affirming surgeries require uh, a letter, right, from a psychologist, right? So they assume that the quote-unquote diagnosis is going to be made by the psychologist and they rely on that so but by these guidelines 
there's no diagnosis, right? There's, and so, right. so what I keep wondering as a physician is where's the diagnosis made? When does that happen? It's not, it's not by me because I don't even have a common ground, you know, sometimes when, you know, I mean, I see kids. So when young people come in and they say, I, you know, I, um, I feel like I'm born in the wrong body. I, I don't know what to do with that really. You know, it's, it's it, anything I say, they, um, we just have such a different view of, of, um, how this all works. And so maybe I send them to a therapist, um, or a psychologist and, um, and if this, and if these are their guidelines, I just don't see how, how, um, there's any sort of differential diagnosis as we would typically do in medicine or um, any sort of discussion at all. So, so where does that happen? Yeah. Cause in, in, you're right. In any other area of clinical practice, we always see greater clarity and certainty about diagnose, diagnostic categories, right? We want, cause we don't want to make a mistake and, and make a, a misdiagnosis. Right. And in a lot of the um, <clears throat> checklists that different organizations like Rainbow Health or um, or the Provincial Health Authority in BC, they have you know, a checklist of things to go through when you're doing a hormone readiness assessment. And they do on those check checklists mention looking for that differential diagnosis, right? Looking for, and they say, they say it's rare, but they say looking for those things that could be mistaken for gender dysphoria, but if you don't know what gender dysphoria is and you have no certainty or clarity around that, how are you supposed to know what it isn't? Like you need sort of these clear delineations to do a differential diagnosis. Yeah, I, I've seen patients that were very clearly psychotic and I can't give any further detail because it would be identifying, but it, it's very clear psychosis. It was a very clear delusional thought pattern that led to them wanting to change sex you know but it, it's how many of these those kinds of things are being missed because everyone just wants to affirm and take people at their word right yeah and well and, and just trying to screen and something like that out according to the you know the new guidelines would be essentially discrimination on the basis of mental capacity or something along those lines like any any time that you're trying to address gender in as they call it a pathological way that's a problem so looking to screen out that looking to find out if a person has gender dysphoria is patho is patho patholog pathologizing uh that person yeah. and so it's like so there's nothing like it's just um, um oh oh but i wanted to that's uh, I was reminded what I wanted to go over is when they're launching this, the, the guidelines, uh, one of them says that um, that they had to write these to all the different knowledge levels, right? And they're like, so you can imagine how difficult that would be to speak to all the different knowledge levels within the, the psychological field. What they were actually saying is different levels of belief in the system, right? Different levels of 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 faith in critical theory essentially right so it's not about about who has how much knowledge about th this it's 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 how how much faith do they have in the affirmation only and the gender blah 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 exactly what you're saying um uh, basically feel like you have a completely different perspective than the patient that 
you're 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 seeing and that's is that's what they're speaking to in the guidelines is like like we know that there's basically this this world view that this very very recent world view that a lot of uh young people have adopted and they're basically saying this is the right way to do everything and we have to make sure that the people who are still uh grounded in reality know the the new you know the, right. know that words no longer mean anything and yeah Right, get those older people up to speed, right? Right, right, yeah. exactly. Not familiar with queer theory, right? Yep, yep. It's a yeah, a measure of faith. All right, here we go. Okay. Uh, so the next set of guidelines we're going to take a look at are the lifespan development, having input into every other set of guidelines uh, that are being developed. And so we are aware of the attacks that are happening against our trans youth in particular right now uh, across the nation and are trying to be really intentional in the way that we write these guidelines that are going to support the advocacy efforts and, and the work that needs to be done um, right now. Um, I'm going to read these uh, as well. Um, so guideline nine, psychologists appreciate the unique impact of developmental stages and trajectories on TGD people across the lifespan and integrate that awareness into the care that they provide. Um, so this is really just kind of being aware of development and not just in terms of you know, chronological, chronological age, but also thinking about identity development, all these different aspects about um, human development that intersect with, uh, with, with um, the experiences of trans and diverse people. Uh, guideline 10, psychologists appreciate the unique experiences of TGD people within the developmental stages of childhood adolescence, adulthood, and older adulthood, and integrate that awareness into the care that they provide. Um, so in this guideline, they'll be breaking, we'll be breaking down into these different phases of um, these different developmental stages and providing more detailed information in each of these areas. Uh, guideline 11, psychologists strive to understand the interactions between gender-affirming care, sexuality, sexual and romantic relationships, and sexual health. Um, we felt like it was really appropriate to make sure that we were addressing sexual health and pleasure and sexual identity development and felt like the lifespan development um, sections where this would really was the, have the best home. Uh, guideline 12, uh, psychologists seek to understand how parenting and family formation among TGD people take a variety of forms. Um, one of the things that we really wanted to make sure that we included in this round of guidelines was information not just for parents of trans people, um, but for trans folks who are parents as well. And then also speaking to this aspect of friend and family. So whether your whether children are involved in your family or not, that's valid in their, in their space and that psychologists need to be aware of family systems that are unique to trans and diverse uh, communities. Guideline 13 is psychologists recognize the importance of supporting parents of TGD people and integrate family support into the care that they provide. Yeah, thoughts on lifespan development. You zoom through that. Well, I just I just find it infuriating as a pediatrician. Um, the way I mean, when I when I again when I think about transgender kids, the most salient part of that to me is that they're kids, not that they're transgender, and they um, they're just seem to be assuming that you know, from the time they're born, they're transgender, and we have to look back and sort of guide them through and make sure that they get to be, um, you know, get to their transgender adulthood. But I don't see it that way at all. Um, 
I think the most important thing is that their children and, and young people and that they should be looked at holistically in the context of their whole environment. Um, and, you know, especially since they also um, stress how gender is fluid. So again, you know, they talk about it in some ways, as in these guidelines, as if it's a thing, as if it's a an identity that you're going to keep your whole life. And yet at the same time, um, we heard many times during the conference how fluid it is, right? Uh, Aaron Soft's gender web. And so again, that contradiction keeps coming up. They can't have it both ways. And, um, and again, we're talking about children. I mean, the main fact about children from my perspective is that they're growing and changing and developing. And we should, we should protect their ability to uh, grow and change and, and develop um, in, you know, whatever way makes the most sense for them rather than directing them in a particular pathway, because we have some, uh, we're, we're taking this uh, perspective, we're, we're imposing this perspective on them. Um, at least that's how I see it. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious what they mean, you know, when they talk about developmental stages and the impact on on you know their gender. Because I mean, Zucker, for example, is a is a developmental psychologist who was who was seeing kids with a developmental perspective. Um and recognizing that, you know, gender identity development happens over time and isn't fully consolidated at a young age and and so what wasn't so that's i mean that was the premise of the watchful waiting approach with children is until their identity is fully consolidated we don't want to prematurely try to um solidify that for them you know so i would say that is a developmentally appropriate way of, of working with children I, but I don't, I, I'm very much under the impression that's not what they mean in these guidelines. So I'm, I'm really curious how they see, you know, developmental stages relating to gender identity. Because I mean, like a two or three-year-old is going to base their gender categories on very sort of general stereotypes. And then as they, and, and I think it makes sense to me, you know, if a child is, let's say, a gay boy, who's naturally very effeminate, it makes sense to me that at that age, a child might be confused about which gender, which sex category they belong in because, because their sex categories is based on stereotypes. And they might see that, well, I am more feminine and I do like dancing like the girls and I do like frilly things like, so I could see how that mistake might be made in that categories, that categorization error at a really young age. But as we get older, we we start to integrate more complex information into that concept of gender identity, and and I think that's why you know the vast majority of time, by the time someone reaches adolescence, they shed off that that misunderstanding. So I mean that I think is a sound way of looking at the developmental stages and how it might impact someone's self perception and where they place themselves in sex based categories. So I hope that they unpack that what they mean by developmental stages a little bit more. They well, don't. 
they well, they uh go on yeah go on no i was just going to say one important developmental stage is puberty right which um this particular approach often often blocks because it's considered to be traumatic so yeah yeah the, the when they talk about the, the when they're talking about the developmental um, stages, they're clearly saying, so you've got this trans person, so just be aware of the unique experience of being trans while going through these develop, like the, like, it's like the, the, the transness is static, essentially, is how they're phrasing it, right? And then it's just like, how is this person, you know, based on this, this age, how are they impacted by, you know, I don't even know what they mean, but it's basically like, be aware that this trans person is going to have a different experience of life at these different stages of life, but their transness will be the same. Like it's, it's very, yeah, it doesn't make much sense. And they don't actually say what, what they're supposed to be looking for, what they're supposed to know um, because they just, yeah, they've gone basically gone through and just obscured everything that was, that, that would be valuable in a guideline. Right. They just, it's, it's just all obscured into, into, um, yeah, just activists speak. Yep. The other thing it seems to do is to um, put gender in the forefront of the appreciation of what's happening to a child or young person as they're growing up, you know, and I'm not sure that that's really, I mean, that certainly may be true for some children, but I think that it's pushing it forward more than might be true for the, you know, for, for many kids. And, you know, it's like asking a, a kindergartner, well, what's your gender, right? Like, is that really something uh -huh. we want to do? Is that really something we want to put forward as the most important aspect of, of who they are? Um, when that and Aaron Seff says, yes, that, that you should be asking every child you, for any reason you're yeah, interacting with that child about their gender identity, like just plant that seed. Uh, this next section is is just the most um, uh, just it, it's so very clear that they have no idea how to do this because they're again the point is to obscure anything that's actually clinical and to just just you know just insert activism and that and it couldn't be more clear than in this um, uh, in this section here. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's go on to clinical practice, assessment, therapy, and intervention. I have a note here that we should compare this to uh, uh, version the, the the last version because that's what they seem to be trying to apologize for. Um, and I did not bring that up ahead of this. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. That's for sure. Okay, here we go. And so the next domain is the domain of clinical practice, which covers assessment therapy and intervention. And um, we revamped, although we kept this domain for, um, from the previous version, we revamped all the guidelines that belong to this domain. Um, and wanting to, if you haven't seen the, pre the, the previous version of the guidelines, each of them includes a rationale and an application. Uh, and what, once we started working on this section, we decided to kind of change uh, the framework and, and highlighting different uh, theoretical approaches uh, in, in instead of like how it was written before. And, and that's how we came up with these four guidelines. So uh, I'm gonna read them as well. So guideline 14 is saying that psychologists empower TGD clients by using a trauma-informed approach. 
Um, and, and this is a, a, a different aspect that wasn't as discussed as much in the previous version of focusing on trauma. Um, and then guideline 15, and psychology support each TGD's client's unique journey by using a general permanent client-centered approach. And in this one, we really wanted to highlight uh, the need to work in collaboration with the client. And one of, one, of, one of the areas that we want to highlight throughout, but this is a particular area where we're going to expand that a little bit more uh, and, and acknowledging that the client knows best what's needed for them and to work in collaboration. Uh, then guideline 16, psychologists optimize TGD people's health and well-being by facilitating access to general affirmative medical care. So in this guideline in particular, is the, the guideline they wanted to highlight our, our working uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary work with medical care providers and the, and the role of psychologists um, and when it comes to general affirmative medical care. And then for guideline 17, psychologists maintain transparent and collaborative diagnosis, assessment, and treatment planning. And for this one, uh, we do a more of an overview of, of, of uh, the diagnosis, for example, of, uh, that are needed to be considered when we talk uh, when we're treating uh, transgender individuals. Uh, but given that given that we have to cover a lot of content, we can't go into like specific details for each of the. It's more of an overview um, of diagnosis. Um, so, and, and more so in, in this particular guideline. Um, we wanted to provide more guidance on when it comes to doing assessment because, like, there isn't enough information at the moment uh, on how to like apply assessment and work with assessment. Uh, given, um, uh, yeah, so there's not a, this is an area where like there's a lot of research that is needed, uh, and that's reflected in in the in the literature that we were able to review. And then we have our last domain. So you see what I mean, where it's basically like a whole section about not having that section? Yeah, they didn't really say very much um, meaningful. Yeah, the section is called assessment therapy and intervention. And then it's basically saying, don't do any of that and just affirm. Well, I mean, that's the basic yeah. uh, conundrum that they have, right? I mean, there's no assessment, really. So what are they going to say? They're just, they're just uh, putting in some bullet points. To, to look like they're saying something substantive. Yeah. 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 I and mean, then they spell that out pretty clearly, right? That their that their priority is to facilitate access to medical care. Right. Facilitate access to gender transition treatment, but without any any assessment whatsoever. Is that's the the, the clinical practice is just to write it's just to sign off on hormones and surgeries. That's, it's just, yeah, yeah. And yet so many people, when we, when we try to tell people that, th that this is what gender therapy looks like now, we're, we're, we're like liars, and, but they're, they're, they're spelling it out all, all right there. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. So the last domain is um, these two final guidelines, which cover research, education, and training. So guideline 18 is the um, research-focused guideline. Psychologists take an affirming stance toward TGD individuals in all aspects of planning and conducting studies, including the dissemination and application of research findings in order to reduce health disparities and promote psychological health and well-being. Um, so this is taking into account 
both the ethics of research and the way that we conduct research, um, including considering community input throughout the research process, um, ideally community-based participatory responses, um, including starting with the research question itself. Um, number 19, the final one is psychologists dismantle cis normativity and professional training in academic settings and um, support the full inclusion and professional advancement of TGD psychology students, trainees, supervisors, and educators. So recognizing that um, we are, as we are all aware, discrimination and transphobia in academia is not a problem of the past. Many training programs do not include much or even any discussion of TGD people, um, and gender diversity then becomes invisible in our training. Um, this includes considerations of how to best support and empower TGD trainees and educators, um, including systems-wide change. All right, thank you for hanging with us for this after-lunch portion of like, whew, afternoon slump. So we, like we said before, one of our goals is to get feedback. And so as we're writing this, this iterative process um, of, of making sure that what we're writing is reflected um, in the lived experiences of folks and that we have voices to say, hey, hold on, are you missing something here? So one of the things that we would love is feedback uh, to improve our work. So we're gonna be gathering feedback, um, taking notes. And so here are some of the guiding questions. Not yet. Um, so one of the things, at first maybe I'll just open up with like any thoughts, reactions, questions before we get into some of this. Yeah. Uh, I need to go to another session, so that's why I want to make it. From what you uh, mentioned, the regular lives, especially what you mentioned like the Rebecca uh, there were some direct and indirect implications of advocacy, but I was curious if you ever considered to add another section to uh, discuss uh, what advocacy actions uh, could be uh, engaged in at multiple ecological levels, and yes. from maybe immediate. Yeah, like our, our different uh, zones of influence, for sure. Um, yeah, so that is included. Uh, we're rewriting and editing right now. And so um, I'm going to go back and be like, are we including it well enough? But I do think that uh, at least in the minority stress, um, those four, uh, it's definitely included. Like, how do we how do we actually do this um, at an individual level, interpersonal, um, institutional, and structural level? Uh, and so, yeah, I'm going to make sure that's a, a nice, strong section. So that question uh, that, that you can't really hear, um, uh, as I understood it, and I'm not sure if you guys could, could make it out, was basically somebody saying, you know, the, the is there going to be a section kind of spelling out specifically what kind of advocacy psychologists are supposed to be doing? Is that what you guys gathered from that question or something I else? Think, I think so. No, that's um, basically I, I gathered that he wanted to know um, how was there going to be more advocacy promoted for psychologists to do? in what way that was what i gathered okay okay yes um hello uh, hi Travis. hi Travis. um so i had a couple of questions um so when you are forming guidelines and maybe there's a general APA guidelines question how does that impact um the council of accreditations um uh 
of accreditation guidelines around what's actually included. I ask because I am a uh, doctoral student. There is like nothing around, like very little around the actual gender affirmative care, let alone like the, the most, what's some of the most critical clinical issues such as assessment and yeah. treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one question I have, like how do you see these guidelines actually interact with um, accreditation guidelines if you do so Second, um, I'm curious um, where you might fit in, especially given the current legislative climate in which some states are uh, proposing legislation that restricts access to gender affirming care in the case of people who are who have been diagnosed with a eating disorder, are neurodivergent in some way. Um, how are you reading the guidelines to make it clear that 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 should not be the case? Like a prior diagnosis of really any type should not be an automatic exclusion of uh, being uh, of a therapist being or a psychologist being able to advocate for someone's uh, gender affirming access to gender affirming. We completely agree. Um, so there's two pieces to that, right? The first is accreditation. Um, and, and how are these guidelines used? And I think part of what Rodrigo spoke to, and, and maybe we can have you speak a little bit more to it, um, guidelines for the American Psychological Association are always aspirational. And so they don't hold the same kind of weight that um, the, the, the standards. The standards. Um, and so we put them out there. You can see that some of this is like, we're really trying to push the field forward. Um, and so they are aspirational, but I do think that they also carry some weight. And so I don't know if anyone else wants to speak to accreditation. I don't know about accreditation. I don't know very much, but I do know that these guidelines need to take into those conversations when it comes time to revise the accreditation standards, but that is run through a different arm of the And so I think there's going to be an importance in you know, the guidelines would be a really strong tool to use to bring into those conversations, but I think as we look at the updated accreditation standards, we really need as a community to, to come together and push to make sure that there are some concrete, specific targets in there that we can say, do we talk about the diversity? Well, but also because, I'm sorry, because that's, that's my concern. We do get exposure to a the diversity and intercultural process, but that's not treatment, right? So I, I, I do not expect coming out of my program that I will know how to properly diagnose um, gender dysphoria since that's it's a cohort in the DSM. And how to do a differential diagnosis uh, in the case of any number of other disorders. And that to me seems very problematic that it's not part of accreditation guidelines. Like it is a core competency, especially based on the pretty voluminous research on, that the APA itself has done on uh, psychologists other yeah, we rate ourselves pretty well, right? And like, thank goodness people are at least a little bit maybe aware that they have are lacking some competencies. Um, but yeah, I think there's a, I think the idea of this being a tool, I mean, like Jake said, right? Like, I'm hoping, I think all of our hope is that this document gets used in those spaces to say, hey, accreditation, you are a different piece of this puzzle. And like, here are our guidelines, why are you not meeting them? And so I think it's it's using this as a tool for the next piece. But there was also another question that you were saying, 
and I lost it. Yeah, uh, just around um, including the guidelines, something around uh, access to gender affirming care. Yes. When it occurs or when gender dysphoria occurs with yes. any other type. Yeah, and I think part of what we're seeing legislatively is that um, it doesn't matter the American Psychological Association, the American Medical Association, all of the associations can say all the things, and the legislation is just being pushed through. And so I think um, the other question that we've had that we're talking about is when we call psychologists to these guidelines, and then psychologists who are aiding and abetting folks to access their medical care, like, this is just not... These guidelines are saying folks should be doing this work and providing access and, and, and increasing access to care, and yet we still have legislation in various states, some passed, some not, that say psychologists could be um, sanctioned for, for helping, right? So um, I think it's complicated, and I think, and I wish they would listen. Um, I don't listen to us, but but I, I do think that there's a lot of problems um, with where we're at legislatively and just not listening to to the wonderful things like um, this is pushing forward. So, I, I don't know how well you guys could hear that, um, the, the doctoral student question, but he basically said, you know, I, I don't feel like coming out of my, my psychology program, I'm gonna have any idea how to do a differential diagnosis or to even assess for gender dysphoria in the first place. And I think that's quite problematic if I'm going to be like treating this population and is there going to be anything more robust essentially uh, in the final uh, version. <laughs> he even said, you know, basically um, it's, it feels like it's all just diversity training. And then they, they got back and they're like, yeah, there, there should be diversity training. And he's like, no, that's what I, you know, that's, that's what there is, but that's not what I'm needing, you know? And then they continue to not answer the question about having any concrete assessment. Which was exactly my criticism when I was receiving training to do the hormone readiness assessments was, you know, we had had them out twice and it was a two day basically diversity training using the right language and the right pronouns and making people feel comfortable. And I'm like, okay, but at what point do we get to be clinicians here? At what point do we get, you know, in on this secret knowledge of <laughs> what gender dysphoria is? <laughs> I, I can I can learn a secret handshake. You know, give me the knowledge. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, oh, good. They just keep so dodging exactly what what they're yeah. supposed to be. Uh, so I'm answering. definitely not I'm definitely not alone in that. In that, I can sense that this guy's you know he's puzzled by that. Right? It's like people who sincerely and I did I sincerely wanted to do really good work and really help people. And I get the impression this this question, the person asking the question is is similar, right? He's interested in doing the work. He's interested in learning. He's interested in understanding what gender dysphoria is and supporting people with gender dysphoria. And he's being alienated from this system of care as a clinician because he can see through this, right? He can see that this is, is basically just queer theory indoctrination. This isn't clinical information. This next question is... Um impossible uh, to hear. Um, well, it's not impossible. You can make it out, but it's painful. Uh, the person, and I, I, I recall because I was in the room, basically asks, um, like, and it's clear from the guidelines he, that, that, that what they're lying out, they're outlining like a very specific type of person, right? Like this, this TGD person is just so unique and interesting and has such a different experience of life. 
Um, but anyway, so this, um, the question asker um, is essentially saying, you know, a lot of psychologists feel like, um, uh, you know, transgender people are a completely like alien species just by, you know, basically all the, all the rules we know are out the window when dealing with this population, you know, like all, um, like they're essentially along those same lines. It's just another way of asking, you know, is there going to be any actual assessment that clinicians can follow when working with this population? Um, but I think because because the question asker said something along the lines of um, uh, that that transgender people are like a, a, a special breed, almost alien, um, that that people feel kind of like. Uh, um, uh, kind of intimidated by working with the, with the population because it's like, uh, it's all these special rules and I don't know what any of it means. All the and, special language. And if I get it yeah. wrong, someone's going to attack me or I'm going to lose my job. Right. Right. It's like all the, all the normal, everything we previously knew you about, you know, the, the profession with people, you know, or to, or to work well with professionals. Let's just make everyone afraid of us, afraid yeah. of making mistakes, afraid of having a conversation that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. And yeah. that's why so many, so many qualified therapists, when they hear the gender stuff come up, they're just like, okay, go see a gender therapist because I don't know anything about, because it's like, it's just this whole different world of therapy. And then they go to the gender specialist and it's just these people, you know? Um, but yeah, so they're going to answer that question uh, yeah. about, about, uh, you know, we have no idea how to work with this population. What are you going to give us? What I see is folks saying that this requires a hyper specialization and therefore I'm going So it's almost like the guidelines that it shouldn't it shouldn't be intended to open up the space and make people give people a map that essentially answers to the test to do this practice as well. It's sort of been recognized to say, well that's a book or that's a specialty that you have part of it. I'm getting out. You know, as a fellow therapist, I'm going to refer you, but I can't treat trans people because, you know, we're so exotic or something like that. We're like not on the same species. So I'm wondering how notionally or conceptually these guidelines can give people confidence or a sense of that it's everybody's work. So I'm not going to be sure. I guess that's one way to kind of come back and watch to see what that means. And I don't want to hunt the bike, so. Yeah. Overall, I think uh, in, in, in this, throughout the kind of uh, one of the like how to incorporate like infrastructure, infrastructure, like uh, competency, and I think uh, what we've been told from the from the first quarter uh, down, how there are certain new but no one is like, oh, this is not right. We want to we're writing this kind of really hard to the balance of like even though we not only being used by by all very professionals, but also like people also being used.
also be part of your psychological practice if you, if you can't work with a particular population, you shouldn't be in the field. Um, and that's not going to There's a difference between clinical and specialization. But to, to your point, I think we do have a guideline that's going to be addressing psychologists' role in the care, and hopefully the context can take that in terms of you know, the range of knowledge and the range of experiences and the realities on their ground that we access to care community, right? So, yeah, absolutely, we need specialists. You know, we need folks who have that highest level of skill. But also, can hear that they're saying, like, you're a psychologist, so set up seven um, because particularly, like, I, mean, I work in Florida, and there's only so many people who have so much experience. You know? And so, at some point, you just got that, like, like those providers who you don't necessarily have all the like, specialization and you're picking up these guidelines with education that helps you make the There's no one further to them. Um, so, they could make a kind of action set off and be squeezing from the So most of that was inaudible, but yeah, like we, the question was essentially, um, you know, spelling out transgender people as if they're a special exotic species that's completely different from the rest of the patient population you would be working with. And so, you know, how are you going to make it so that this working with this population isn't so intimidating and people don't feel so ignorant and out of the loop? Um, and their response was basically like coming at it like the question was about like, how do I work with a Catholic person? You know, or how do I work with a um, a gay person? You know, they're they're trying they're doing they're making it all about identity, right? So they're they're pretending like this isn't us, right? Like there's nothing to treat, nothing to diagnose, right? You're just happen to be working with a person who happens to be trans. This is the most important, huge thing about them, but it's really just just like this this kind of tiny characteristic, as if it's like yeah, they're. <sighs> Yeah, they just play it off like it's like it's just a, a you know an adjective in in another yeah another identity characteristic, um, and and they kind of do that whole it's really kind of condescending you know like step up and do your job one of them actually said you know like if if they were going to a psychologist for any reason other than gender I would I would agree with that statement right. you know that 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 being trans isn't isn't the totality of that person. And that's how I would want someone to treat me is like, just because I'm trans doesn't mean that we can't just relate to one another as human beings. There's so much more about me. I'm a whole person. And, you know, we may actually have values and ideas in common. And so I would, I would, I actually agree with that response. If, if the, the visit had absolutely nothing to do with gender. Right, but it's about yeah, it's about uh, working with the population for the purpose of of writing writing medication like like healthcare access, right? Yeah. So it's about it's specifically about not just about gender, but about medicalizing that gender. And yet you have to pretend like it's just yeah, yeah, like like they happen to be you know Hindu or whatever. I think we heard that in another session also, Aaron, um, I don't remember who's with the, with the psychiatrist, uh, Dan Karasich, I think, or I'm not sure how you say his name, but there was also someone had asked a question and there was, you know, there, 
the idea was that any any psychologist should be able to do this and if they don't want to do it they should get out of the profession you know this it seemed to be sort of a widely held sentiment that um you know stand up and do your job yep um, yeah we're not going to tell you what gender dysphoria is so that you have any competence and then we can demystify this but you should step up and do and do your job i mean it's mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very well, contradictory, it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah Let's make it, it as confusing as possible and intimidate you, but tell you you're a bigot if you're intimidated. Right. But they make it easy to diagnose, right? You just have to listen to the patient and agree with what they say. So it's it's not really <laughs> a diagnostic challenge. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. If you if you if you're gonna be as uh, you know, medically ethically devoid as they want you to be, then yes, it is very easy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I identify as someone really muscular with a full, thick head, you know, head of hair. <laughs> you must affirm me. That's, that's when I, when I, was, I was telling this story on Benjamin Boyce, and he was saying that he identifies as a gigachad, and do, you know, basically, should he be affirmed in that? I was like, according to these guidelines, absolutely. You know, it's, and what, what's, what makes one more valid than the other, uh, as they say? Okay. Um, so this is where I ask my question, which is kind of redundant, um, but I felt like it was still worthwhile to ask, even though a lot of people had already asked the question about assessment. I found it worth, worthwhile to ask because I could say that I'm a trans person, um, and therefore I'm supposed to have this special knowledge that they have as well, um, is, is the, the general understanding, I guess. Um, and then I also made a point to um, draw out that... Uh, that all of this is based on a fundamental premise that there are trans people and there are cis people. And, you know, you're, you're working with, with the latter of those two and you need to be able to differentially determine, you know, which is a cis person and which is a trans person. Um, because, you know, when we're talking about medi- medicalization, that is really important. Uh, anyway, that's just the kind of the, the, the foundation, but basically what I was thinking uh, when I when I asked the question, and you'll hear it in my voice, I'm pretty nervous asking this question because I just knew the tension was going to get crazy, but here we go. Um, yeah, so, so we kind of, kind of thinking back to the last two questions a little bit, and, kind of, and also the, the, the one sorry, phrase there is what are gaps, and this is not like a criticism exclusively of you guys, because I've seen it also when I reviewed uh, the uh, adolescent chapter of SOC 8 as well as the mental health chapter, it doesn't really say specifically what those assessments should look like. And I know you said that you're going to elaborate on that, but I'm curious what those assessments are going to look like specifically, like what guidelines, like, like you were saying, you know, like providers need to know what exactly they're treating or what, what they're looking for to diagnose. And one concern, I, I'm a trans man, and one concern I have is like, what are providers able to do to ensure that they're not transitioning cis children unnecessarily? That's that's something that I'm kind of getting more and more concerned about. Certainly, reading um, uh, socket, it doesn't seem to be like we know that there are trans children, there are cis children, but it's like there's no way to tell which is which. And this also applies to adults as well. Like, I think providers need to have specific guidelines and specific assessment tools to make that that differential diagnosis, so that yeah, we're not uh, yeah, basically treating people. Well, gender dysphoria is, and that's, I mean, as far as, like, for psychological care, right, it should be able to, to diagnose. So I think, like, I'll just speak for myself, it's, you know, I don't know that I speak for everyone, but, um, 
a part of my approach to trans care is not to treat identities and not to say who's cis or who's trans or who's not binary, who's gender expansive, but rather treat the dysphoria and the discomfort and the embodiment roles of that person. Right? Like what, how do you want to embody your gender and what's that look like? So um, I think that there's a lot in the media right now about like transitioning the wrong kids. And, and I think there's this, this is undertow, this subtext of it's not a baby trans or we don't want people to be trans or, or we gotta make sure we're not accidentally trans and people, like, and I think that there's, there's just so much happening um, right now in the media and in the New York Times, like, I, I can't, like, that's just not gonna happen. And so I, I think the assessment piece, though, is is something that's, it's part of this whole legislative process that people are like, oh, you're not assessing enough, you know. And I, I also think that we that a lot of folks default to over assessing and over asking and, and keeping people in therapy for much longer than they need to be. Uh, and so I think there's this delicate balance of you know not being gatekeepers, being liberators, getting out of people's way, and also like there is no assessment. I can't assess my gender. I'm telling you what it is. This is it. And, and I need you to get out of my way so I can access the care you. And so, and I also think that there's, sorry. Uh, I also think that there's this piece of like gender exploration therapy or gender exploratory therapy that is basically just a cover for conversion therapy. And so, yeah, I have a lot of that. I'm happy to chat with you some more about you know, some of that, but I also have to do it. I mean, well, add to that is that when you come here, very aware of the urgency as well. So even though we have drafted about two thirds of all the guidelines, uh, we're taking and like we divided like we have like divided the work on each of the domain and so on the group. When it comes to the developmental and particularly children and adolescents, we're bringing more of more of our team members to to write it, uh, and we're taking more time because you know the urgency and the care that those particular uh, uh, guidelines need. So that's uh, that's, that's the area that. We're what I think that's really important is that a lot of the attention around that is those questions, right? Is who's really trans? Who's not trans? Who's going to start that treatment without really and then change their mind, right? These these are the types of questions that our profession has been asking repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And somehow, even though we're getting results that are showing that the, the best practices to trust trans people when they tell you who they are, this narrative somehow is in place in the literature and in the media. And I think the, the piece that really the fear that underlies that is this terror of transness. That being trans is not but there's something wrong. Um, or that there's something wrong with doing a trial of intervention or a trial of medication and changing their mind. We do this all the time. It's a new And so the only reason that this is considered more dangerous or more threatening or more um, negative in the trans community is the transfer It is that so that that last uh, speaker is very uh, he's he's difficult to hear, but um, He's essentially saying that fear, that that being concerned that people might be transitioning unnecessarily is is just transphobia. Because the only reason that you would think transitioning unnecessarily is bad is if you think being trans is bad. Um, 
it's quite quite the take. Yeah, I mean, it bears repeating. I think something that I said in in our last episode that the the issue isn't for me isn't trans good or trans bad. It's 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 the wrong framing. It's it's more who's going to benefit from these drastic medical interventions and who isn't. Like it's not about identity. People can identify however they want, and they can change identi- identity multiple times throughout their lifetime. That's fine. Nobody needs my permission or anyone else's permission to identify as something or to experiment with something. Or, But it, we're talking about irreversible medical interventions. And just the, the very dismissive sort of cavalier attitude about, well, who cares if someone chops their breasts off and, and then later regrets it, right? As if that isn't a severe medical trauma. Yes. One thing I keep getting more and more the impression of, and I did in this room, and it was something that something that I was concerned about before that was definitely solidified in this meeting, is that a lot of the people who are writing these guidelines, I think, are people who have already been harmed by gender medicine, and they can't face that, is, is what I suspect. Um, and, or I, I, I tweeted how I put it was a lot of people driving the gender bus are people who've already been run over by it. It's like, how do you, you don't, it's not something that you can backtrack, especially when you're, it's not just your body invested in this ideology. It's your profession and your social network. And it's basically, as we can clearly hear a lot of it's their religion too. I mean, it's their everything. And if if one thing starts to fall down, it all it all comes crumbling down. And I think that's really, I think people are going to do everything in their power to keep it propped up. And that's why I think a lot of the people who are now such strong advocates of this affirmation only model are people who've already been harmed by it, and they are not able to face that. I experienced yeah. a taste of that when, um, like I mentioned in a previous episode, that I'm aware of three individuals in Canada who were approved for medically assisted death. And when I mentioned it to somebody in my life, because one of the individuals that I'm aware of was known to both me and this other person. And when I mentioned it to the other person, I was kind of scolded, like, how dare you mention it? How dare you say that out loud? And it really shaming me for for mentioning it. it. It it there's we're not allowed to talk about these medical traumas, even even if we have feel like we have benefited from it in some way. We're still not allowed to just talk about how traumatizing and difficult that experience has been. It, it's like this unspoken rule in the community that you're never supposed to speak badly about any of these clinicians. You're never supposed to complain about your care. In fact, there was an individual who I know of that had very severe complications from phalloplasty and was having a really difficult time getting appropriate follow-up care and getting it repaired and was told by the person in the health authority that was sort of the liaison between the surgeon and our, and our province was being told, well, you should just, you should just be grateful that you had this opportunity in the first place. Wow. That's terrible. Why why do you guys think that that is 
the case? Why is that silence so enforced and important? Is it, as you said, Aaron, that the whole house of cards comes tumbling down if anyone digs too deeply or? I think so. I think, yeah, I think, I think we've created this monster you know, it's it's ironic that we're being called transphobic in the work that we're doing with the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, when I feel like this whole machine, this whole monster that's been created, serves itself at the expense of the people that are along for the ride. It, you know, they're not protecting trans people. They're protecting this system, they're protecting this ideology, and they're protecting the, the practitioners. Mm. And who gives a shit if people are being harmed along the way? Yeah, that's terrible. It's quite unfathomable to to witness. Yeah. In the transcription that you you put here, Aaron, I mean, they come right out and say there's there's that there's something wrong with trying a medication and then changing your mind. We do this all the time in medicine. Um, so I I can tell you as a physician, we don't do this all the time in medicine, especially in pediatrics. I mean. You know, I think two or three times before prescribing an antibiotic or ADHD medication, you know, I mean, we do use medication, but we use it very judiciously. And it is so cavalier the way they talk about these interventions, especially for, for young people. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had medications in the past where, you know, I believe the diagnosis was correct. I believe the, med the medication was correct for the diagnosis, but I was experiencing side effects from the medication and decided not to take it. But that's a, that's a very different than, you know, jumping into irreversible medical interventions that will permanently alter my body that could do serious damage and have long-term, a long-term impact with, with basically no diagnosis. Right. With no diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. And Aaron T, I just really want to give you credit um, for for asking that question. That was a that was a pretty difficult room and a tense atmosphere. And you pressed on and you did and you I thought you did great. So Thank especially you very much. given yeah, especially given your experience of being kicked out of the WPATH conference for asking yeah. the same question. You must <laughs> right. have you must have been kind of concerned, you know. <laughs> you tested this theory, right? Like what if we asked that, what would happen? Because then in the, with WPATH, it was a virtual conference, so it was easy to just click a button and boot you. And we kind of asked, well, what would they have done if you had been there in person? And, and here's our answer, right? I mean, he must yep. have been worried that bouncers were going to come and, and actually <laughs> remove you from the room. <laughs> yep. yep. I mean, I got, I already had gotten from the vibe of the place that it was going to be okay, that it was going to be, that there wasn't going to be a huge to do about it. But it was just, you know, I don't like to make things awkward, you know, it's like, and there, there was, um, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously quite the contrarian, but I don't like awkward <laughs> interpersonal uh, interactions, you know, and I knew it was going to be the entire room just like, yeah, but um, and they and they seemed quite uncomfortable. Like there's there's a scene, there's the, the moment when um, the uh, the person who's, who tends to be speaking the most, I think their name is Jay, they're the, identified as non-binary, um, where they were very uncomfortable and kind of looked like kind of kind of red in the face as they were answering the question. But then it just kind of tense. And then when they got to, we don't want to be gatekeepers, their face lit up like, oh, he'll agree with me on this. You know, and that was how he answered the question, how they answered the question was, we don't want to be, uh, he's like, yeah, we don't want to be gatekeepers. Like, ah, this is, this is this thing that everybody agrees on. We want to be liberators. And, um, 
obviously I didn't feel appropriate, but like, no, I do want you to gatekeep. <laughs> right. Yeah. And just blaming the media, right. Just blaming yeah. this. Oh, there's this narrative going around in the media that's false and it's propaganda yep. and, and yep. it's causing people unnecessary concern. Yep. Not that there are real detransitioners who are being silenced. And the minute that they talk about their experience, they're, you know, told their bigots and they're told to shut up. Right. So much of this movement is about language, right? It's mm -hmm. really on, um, um, and there are these magical words like gatekeeping and conversion therapy that people wield to try to just bring people along or shut people out, you know? Um, yeah. But there's there's so much there's so much language and there's so little um focus on what's actually happening to to bodies right mm -hmm. right that's that's the crazy i don't know if it's a paradox or contrary or what it is but it's so infuriating that yeah there's so much hyper focus on words that people use and the, the tone and narrative and that's so important and people are unsafe if you don't get their pronouns right but the then at the same time, the approach to the surgeries and the, like the actual physical harm that's happening. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a very bleak contradiction. But as far as it's it's more like it's it's entirely about language. Uh, this is, again, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is you'll realize that that the trans activists and then those pushing against it are basically describing the same instances the same phenomena but if you say it in a negative way the trans activists are saying you're a liar that's not happening but they're essentially saying the exact same thing they're just saying it's good and so if you say if you like talk about the clinic right so so jamie reed's clinic is a perfect example of this is the, that that clinic is rushing through and affirming all of these kids which is exactly what the professionals are telling them to do right that's exactly what wpath is telling them to do it's exactly what this apa um new guidelines are telling them to do. But when Jamie Reed comes out and says, this is what's happening at the clinic, and I think kids are being harmed, they say, you're a liar. That's not happening. That's a good clinic, you know? And it's like it, it's like those things are happening, and, and they want them to be happening because that's what the activists want, is no gatekeeping. But when you bring up the actual negative consequences of that, you're lying. It is not happening. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, All I, language. I, I, I think there's a lot of value in you asking the, the questionnaire. And I think I think part of the value, there were obviously other people in that room and who knows how many who just didn't speak, who are, are of, of a similar mind to you. And I think the value in you standing up and identifying yourself as a trans person with these concerns, I think will help reinforce anyone in that room who had any doubt, uh, you know, uh, with what they were hearing to be able to say, well, even trans people are doubting this. I hope so. That I kind of had that that hope when I when I went to WPATH because I thought there'd be a lot more people online who were kind of of the same mind. But there, and um, I, yeah, I think you you might be able to to, to second this because um, you were there in person. That the the vibe was very much a a, a conference of believers. It didn't seem like there were. I mean, we, the three of us were there. So yeah, there could, definitely could have been others, but I just, I got the impression in that room, um, like the, the, the clap, the snapping when somebody was like, I, I can't remember what the, it was, but in the, in the, just, just the general vibe in the room, I, I kind of got the impression that I was sort of alone in this. And, and there's that, there's that guy who's the, that, the doctoral student who's asking that really pointed question. 
he's he soon in this inter exchange he's going to say what is the APA going to do basically he's asking the APA to make a statement that ROGD is bunk science so I'm not really sure what angle that guy is coming from or if he's basically just trying to see if if he's if it's bait or something, I'm not sure, maybe, or if he's genuine, I don't really know. It was an interesting character, but his first question was great. And it really, it basically kind of paved the way for the, for the question I needed to ask. But um, I'm just, I, yeah, I think, I, I think the whole being the, tr the trans people who are saying this stuff, I, I think doing, we're doing a lot more of what you describe, Aaron, by the podcast and just general, you know, other other sort of content uh, that we do, because there was only that was another thing. Uh, my concerns about asking in the APA session is because what there were probably about like 10, 15 people in that room. It was one of the smallest sessions I went to there. So it wasn't a there wasn't a big audience to it. Um, but that also did uh, make my nerves about making myself, you know, public enemy number one, a little bit uh, assuaged. <laughs> <laughs> so if there was going to be a gang pile on you, it would have been a small gang pile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, we're going to see what the, so there's some more responses to it. Cause they, they were clearly very, they, they, they all seemed very awkward. And I think you might can attest to this is they seemed uncomfortable with the question. I think primarily to your point, Aaron, they seemed uncomfortable that it was a trans person who asked that question is why they seemed more, so much more uncomfortable responding to me than they did to the other two who basically asked similar uh, questions, maybe less pointedly, but they would have uh, looked really questions. they would have they would have looked really bad. I mean, because the narrative is so much about lived experience and elevating right. the trans voices. Right. So they would have looked really bad just blatantly calling you a transphobe. That right. was probably a lot of their discomfort, right? Is how do we answer this question in a way that shuts down the question without looking like we're shutting down a trans person? Right, right. That, yeah. <laughs> imply <laughs> imply the internalized transphobia card. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's see what else they have to say about it. I understand the concern. <clears throat> Thank you. 
you know, just like terrorists in the name of Um And so, yeah, it is, it is, I do care about that. I think that people who do transition, we transition will own some different houses to be supported. It could be with their reforming here to be at, you know, what they need to be. But the conversation I think is nuanced about what best supports that process um, and how we can make sure that we can just harm our problems. And shape our power. So we're doing this in the breath for talking to people who do transition and not the full spectrum of the
work on having a specialization with the um, the AKA journal that one. So we're gonna have a special issue there where we're gonna be able to expand on some of the some of the content that wasn't being able to make it into the final problem. So I'm gonna maybe we'll be able to So I just want to say that all of that was the answer to my question. So like all, all they all four responded and said very different things. Um, but I, I did want to point out that uh, again, that, that person, Jay, um, they said that they are a detransitioner and retransitioner and that it's important to know that gender that, that or that you or that you understand what your client is at that time um you know because because their gender could change and we know that gender is diverse and expansive and then somebody else chimes in and there's nothing wrong with that and they're like yeah there's nothing wrong with that it, it, like what you were saying the contradiction of um like both this is both like we need to do this this permanent medical intervention on something that is also fluid and ever evolving and expansive and it changes from day to day and that's beautiful and yeah, and they never address that contradiction. Right. I, I missed a lot of what was said. I couldn't quite understand it, but I did um, hear them mention a few times that um, catchy phrase, embodiment goals. Yeah. Which, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about because that is um, quite a different perspective, right, than treating gender dysphoria. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And I think I think it all has to do with that, that whole um, kind of dealing with regret, or dealing with um, non binary people who want to medicalize in some way, they, they want it's, it's totally being framed away from, you know, the sex change, you know, it's not like yeah. that was ever accurate. But you know, as going from one to another, it's, it's, it's just, how do you want to change your body? And how does that relate to your gender identity and expression? And how can this therapist write you the referral to get these embodiment goals? Yeah. The way I interpreted that this new language of embodiment goals, it, it really, it means something different to me. And I think it's a piece that's that's missing from our understanding. So I think we should link um, in the show notes underneath uh, is a, uh, keynote speech that was done by Martine Rothblatt. So anyone who doesn't know who Martine is, Martine is a trans American trans woman billionaire who um, made billions in the technology industry, was a former CEO of Sirius Satellite Radio, um, and then branched off into medical technologies and is now developing artificial intelligence technologies with the goal of downloading consciousness into a machine and was invited to this keynote speech. So at that keynote speech, and this was just a few years ago at the University of Victoria, they host a conference every, I don't know if it's every year or every so often called um, Moving Trans History Forward. And so Martine, and in the audience were people like Jameson Green, uh, Aaron DeVore, um, so very high profile trans activists. Um, and 
Martine started the presentation talking about, you know, the concept of gender dysphoria and that, the, you know, this concept is of if we feel an incongruence between our gender and our body, that our solution is to change the body and, and yay, how successful that's been. And then went off and built on that concept and developed, uh, I can't remember what the term, so this idea, so then she went on to talk about these technologies that, that she's developing through her organization of trying to get around the limits of the human body in general. So, and was talking about the development of once they have the technology to download consciousness into machines, that immediately frees us from embodiment altogether. And we could choose any embodiment we want. And so by the end of the presentation, I mean, it got more and more bizarre as she spoke. By the end of the presentation, she was talking about a technology that used nanorobots, so these tiny, tiny little robots, which could swarm together in any shape possible. And that that would therefore free us from em this embodiment um, by downloading consciousness into any form imaginable. And she wasn't joking. And, you know, and this is a billionaire with our billionaire with at her disposal, you know, a lot of money, a lot of technologies is it has been involved in high tech and medical technologies and is quite serious about developing this technology and is already working on downloading her wife's um, consciousness into a robot that it has the likeness of her wife. The wife sits with the robot on a daily basis and speaks to it so that the artificial intelligence will learn her memories and learn her speech patterns and basically become her in the in the I saw a documentary about the two and they framed it as this beautiful love story that they love each other so much they want to download their consciousness into machines so that they can continue their love story forever but this so this is the thinking you know this is now in the territory not just of transgender but transhumanism about about transcending what it means to be human and what it means to be embodied seeing the body as something problematic and something um, limiting and confining and a source of distress and despair and, and um, um, you know, confinement. And, and so th that's how I'm hearing when I hear embodiment goals, I'm hearing it through the, through the lens of where this thinking is, is going and pairing with these technologies meant to fr really free us in their minds, free us from the limits of having a body at all. Wow, that's pretty sobering. Thanks for explaining all that. We um, we certainly moved a long way from like discomfort with puberty, you know. <laughs> like I know, and it right sounds so all. it sounds so bizarre, and which is why I don't I don't mention it very often because it, it's it's so. The thinking is so bizarre, and yet this was a mainstream, like local to me, keynote speech at a well-known trans conference with high-profile trans activists there. I mean, Jameson Green used to be the president of WPATH, wow. and you can see him there in the video asking Martina a question, and they obviously knew each other from their exchange. So this is this is very much a part of the thinking in trans activism right now is, is why stop at transgender? Why not? Why not any you know, discomfort or limits to the human body. You know, I, there's some kernel of 
dare I say truth in that we're more than our bodies, right? Clearly, clearly there's something, you know, whether you come at that from a spiritual perspective or, um, you know, psychological, we're, we're, we're definitely more than our bodies. And yet our bodies are important. They matter. And our bodies are, are part of us. And um, again, back to this, uh, what we've talked about before, about how casually this whole ideology treats our bodies and mm-hmm. changes we make to them. And and now we're talking about bodies in general. And I'm I'm a physician. I think bodies matter. I think the health yeah. of our bodies matter and they make a big difference in our well-being and you know all the things that we do, like I as you talked about what Martine Rothblatt is envisioning for us, I think about all the pleasures of our body, you know. Yeah. Um, And not only that, but I mean, they're discovering all the time that we actually, you know, that consciousness isn't just stored in our brain, that we actually, you know, there's a connection between our gut and our mind or our heart and our mind. I mean, they're, they're doing some fascinating research about how our heart being a center of emotions is more than just a metaphor, that they're actually discovering a science to the relationship between our heart and our brains and how our whole nervous system stores consciousness and and trauma gets stored in our bodies consciousness is in our bodies and we have the same neurotransmitters that are in our brains in our gut right so it's we're not just we're not just a brain that happens to be in this very inconvenient vehicle right right well put carry on yep Certain areas where you might want some specialists, but that can't be the only place that can't be the 
And so like, I think, you know, if I'm gonna go have a gender affirming surgery, I might want a specialist who really knows the ins and outs of that surgery. But if I wanna go, uh, you know, get some hormones, I should go be able to talk to the doctor and say, yeah, I need my hormones. And then everyone has that. So I don't know if this is pie in the sky for me. I think it's, I think it's where we need to go. Um, if they're not there yet, like there's so many doctors who are still just not affirming. Um, and so I think, I think it's a, Training issue, and, and so I don't know if anyone else needs to speak to the requirements for some types of CMS people have to get. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you for speaking. All right, it's my go to travel. Um, no, I was just saying that there are maybe some mechanisms looking at the state licensure level again, given you know the state of the states. Um, that may or may not be an effective strategy, but definitely in terms of certain types of training opportunities, you can work with the psychology boards and with your um, state licensing boards to make sure that there are specific CEU requirements that are uh, mandated for all providers. Um, I love that question, and I particularly love that you asked for a timeline. Um, and I want that question to be asked more. Um, I think, you know, we are able to right now write these guidelines that are by BPA standards aspirational. We're going to put in what is the best practices. You know, we're gonna put in what the research says and we hope we'll take it and run with it. You know, like whatever advocacy efforts, um, I think the APA says that people should be doing advocacy to support their patients to reduce health disparities, right? So, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna write this, it's gonna have the language and then, um, yeah, from there, hopefully, um, in, and we know that this is coming out in 2025, so if anybody wants to be thinking about groundwork for that when the document comes out, hopefully it's used, yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna reiterate, right, like our guideline 19 is psychologists dismantle cis-normativity in professional training and academic settings to support the full inclusion and professional advancement of TGD, psychology students, trainees, supervisors, and educators, right? Like, everyone needs this, right? And so, but I know you're in medicine, right? So I also know that- I'm interested in like, psychology, what you all do. Yeah, yeah. It's like, write this and then like, use it, right? Like, hey, this is from the APA. We gotta use, like, we gotta make sure that our training program is, is up to date and that we've got people coming in to provide this training. We don't have anyone already, so I think, Yes, I hope it pushes us forward. So, and, and even though, I mean, it's gonna take a little while for us to uh, publish this, but it's also important to remind people that the, the guidelines, the current guidelines are still uh, usable. I mean, you'll see there's some areas, like there's not enough conversation about intersectionality of non-binary people, but you can still use those guidelines and the initial task force also came out with tons of tools in addition to a, a special issue. I know there's even, I haven't seen it, but I know there's even like, videos that the APA uh, put out like that uh, that can be used. So there's that piece. Um, so well, that's well. Sorry, just want to ask Paula, but like, how okay. do you make it, the same issue that I tried, but like, how do you make it uh, work? Um, so the, like, what is APA doing as far as, like, are they making TV score this stuff, and then like, making a requirement, or like, like, how do we force the retraining Happen at least on some basic level. And like, if it's not there, what is our, what are the like, political capital that can be extended? Where is that advocacy to go? So like, you already have this organizing body. Like, they're they're letting the guidelines. What's the next step? 
I mean, I don't, I don't think we're going to have clear answers to that, but I think it's someone else has a better clarification. I, and that's really important. So we're going to follow up with 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 them because I mean we're working together with the other the, the other departments in APA, uh, but that's something that we actually haven't considered to like the, the direct impact. So I think that's something that we can definitely. Uh, I mean, in this kind of like, we wanted to ask people for their feedback because that's something that uh, we didn't consider before. Yeah, I think. Um in terms of the advocacy, right? Like, I, I would love to see people run with this, but you're right, it's just gonna sit on the shelf if no one does anything with it. And so when I think about the conversation that we were having around like licensing boards and accrediting bodies, I think that's a spot where there's actual, like to get your license, to, to renew your license every year, you gotta do some things, right? And like for a psychologist, like, you know, the suicide training, that there's like various trainings, you have to have a certain number, right? There's room there that's at the state level and so like I know in California it looks very really different than other places and so yeah I don't have a good answer but I do think the advocacy piece and like how do we take these pieces that are created that we're spending years to work on and actually put them into practice I think um, yeah I think that's a, a, a pretty nice step um, So we do have a whole section that's on its own going to be about sort of older adulthood. Um, but I think the point about caregivers is really important. So we have one for parents of TGD people, but how can we integrate more caregivers across the lifespan? So thank you for that. Yes, yes, This might very well already be addressed, um, but I just wanted to, or it was addressed and I kind of just forgot. Um, but two things before I forget, so I'm just going to say both. But can you speak on, um, I know you mentioned advocacy and like now that you're allowed to use the word everything, but are there, is there wording in the guideline that also encourages psychologists and therapists to just like stay in touch, you know, with the evolving language or stay in touch with like, you know, like the political side and the news? I even remember just even across my own like training, I'm really for psychologist here, but even in the course of my own training the last few years, how some of the language shifted from like, it, I was never even taught that it was that important to people to do them all, but yeah. And then like eventually, even over time, like it became imperative or it seemed very imperative to work. And I was wondering if there's language that like, you know, it really kind of enforces our importance to the same touch um, with the communities and the climate. And then the second part is actually still just what I think you know, when Ellis speaking as well, um, if there's also room for encouragement for like inter interdisciplinary work in that way, because especially when, you know, serving certain communities, so, like the advocacy disparities, our roles in like all of the teaching, like the letter writing and everything too, that there's uh, more encouragement about like interdisciplinary work, collaboration, and like that. 
thank you for those questions. So yes, so um, in the introduction, we are going to talk about, because I mean, we have made decisions as well, like we changed the, the title or like the wording from gender and gender conforming people to continue gender diverse people, and we're gonna address why we made that, that decision as well as what you mentioned into kind of like, uh, that language is gonna keep changing and, and they need to keep in touch with that. So that's gonna be in the intro. And then for the interdisciplinary collaboration in the in the domain of clinical in the clinical domain, uh, there is guideline sixteen. We have a lot of conversation about this in guideline sixteen. So that's why we're using the wording specifically on medical care because that's our, our way of like kind of connecting the work that we're doing of mental care, mental health care to uh, and the, the interdisciplinary work that is needed with uh, the medical care. So that that's the guideline where we're gonna. And, oh, thank you. That's the guideline where we're going to expand uh, on, on that particular collaboration, interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, I'm glad this slide is up. Um, my name is Ames, my pronouns are he and him, and I am not a clinician, I'm a policy lawyer. Um, but in looking at guideline 15, if there's a way somewhere in there, I'm just putting a final point on everything that you all said earlier about the transition and I'm co-signing all that. I think if you had a really clear statement that it's a psychologist's obligation to support people with the transition, that would undercut a lot of the legislative policy that is based on uh, preventing um, this exploratory therapy that is really privately conversion. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean the language. I mean, I can tell you right now, the language is gonna because of the inspirational nature. We can't be like this is of the obligatory part, but yes, well, we'll lead on that towards that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, I don't know if you've talked to me before, sorry, I can't but um, coming from a more like pessimistic point of view, have you considered what are the potential negative responses from the, like the psychologists in general or specific sections in the ACA or in how can you think about, like, because this is a guideline, and then it is possible that people will say this is the wrong guideline, and they shouldn't do this, and like, how do you prepare yourselves for that potential situation, particularly in terms of the political climate We're expecting it. We're expecting it, and um, we, so from the first, we know uh, we have access to the um, the public comments from the first guideline, so um, we know that uh, we actually even got calls already about like the content that needs to be included in all of this. Um, so we know kind of how it happened in the previous in the previous guideline, but like things are completely different now and probably worse than before. So we're expecting it, and there's going to be one of the things that you might have noticed that we're gonna, there's going to be different. Uh, Tiers of feedback, so we're going to get community feedback, professional feedback, and also, but there's a public comment period that's going to happen later this year where anyone, uh, regardless of whether they're associated with APA or, or not, can provide uh, feedback. And usually during that, that period, we're going to get a lot of that, that criticism 
uh, that we'll be able to later on address and, and touch on. Yeah, I mean, I think given how many of us on the task force are trans and gender diverse, um, it's a heavy weight, right, to carry, uh, to move from the 2015 guidelines, which are still existing, which still are there, and everyone can use and critique all they want, and to redevelop them and to recreate them to what we're doing now. I mean, it's heavy work. It's just like the landscape and the self-care that all of us have to figure out how to engage in. Um, I mean, this process is lasting also a lot longer because of all the legislative landscape and the political issues that are happening that we are contending with as people and as professionals. And so already, we've already gone over how much time we were supposed to spend. Um, and I think it's, it's no surprise that it's in direct relationship to what's happening politically. And so, yeah, we're having lots of conversations about what does this look like as people who are affected by this, who are personally and professionally affected by this. Um, and I, I think part of the public comment period, I think we've had conversations, I don't remember if we decided or not, that someone else would go through the first draft, the first, like, take out all the stuff that we don't need to see and hear and give us a little summary of all the hate. I don't want to read all that. Like, that's not good for my mental health. And so, yes, thank you, allies, for going through that for us and reading all the hate and pushing it to the side. And so, yeah, that's a good question, though. Thank you. So that's a, that's a professional who's writing the APA's guidelines for working with transgender patients. And they just said that they're going to have an ally read all the negative comments during the open comment period and push them to the side so that they don't have to read the hate. I guess it, it it's hard to know what they mean by hate. If they mean like personal venomous attacks, I guess I could understand that. But if they mean gender critical comments, that kind of flies in the face of what they said earlier, right? Like we welcome anyone to make a comment and express their opinion. We really value your feedback. So hard to know maybe what they meant by that. Yeah. That was kind of, uh, yeah, shocking when, when I heard that. It's like during the open comment period, it's like only the, only the, yeah, only, only, only the praise. Only comment, yeah, only comments that agree with what they're already saying will be allowed to make so, it through. Right, right, to even be uh, viewed by them. That's, what's the point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think also, you know, I mean, we're integrating what is in the evidence base. We are scientists. And if there is something that is in the evidence base that needs to be included, great. Um, but we are not politicians and we are not going to just say like, well, this is like the political climate X, Y, Z, you know, we're going to include the science. Yeah. Um, and that in some ways makes it a little easier. And being critical consumers of the science, because we also know that there's a lot of science happening right now, especially in some journals that are pretty problematic. And um, yeah, yes. Thank you. Yes, sometimes. I mean, and <laughs> so I'm sure like during the comment period, we're going to get like some like uh, links to certain uh, probably more like online uh, news articles that people might want us to cite, but we have very clear 
criteria or what we can include based on the science. So even if people, and we're, when it comes to the public comment section, we need to respond to that, provide, and doesn't mean that we need to incorporate everything that's being suggested, but we need to respond to it. So we'll be able to respond uh, and we're also going to publish a paper related to the process of writing this because we, we want we want there to be as much transparency as possible about the decisions that were made and how we came out with the uh, with the guidelines. So and we have a very clear criteria of what we can include or not. But it is true also that as much as it's based on science, we're not putting our opinions in it, but we are also bringing not only a, a scholarly experience or experiential like. Dr. L. told us in the morning, a reminder that we're also bringing that into this, and that's why, like, sometimes it is somewhat personal. But we're not, we're, we're keeping this center on the science. Uh, just, uh, so, one, I, I don't remember who was on the earlier slide. Um, what is actually the process by which this gets to be ratified? I think you described like the public comment mm -hmm. or the levels of comment, but who does this have to go through to actually be adopted by the APA? First question. And then second question is, actually on that prior point, are you going to talk about in these guidelines like pseudoscience that needs to be discarded, such as rapid onset gender dysphoria, um, like other, yeah, other, I mean, frankly, bullshit that, that I hear, again, people quoting in my program, and I have to be the one as a student saying, actually that paper, the revision on that paper was longer than the paper itself, and didn't actually talk, talk to any trans people. Like, are you going to include things, like actually like pinpoint, this is pseudoscience, this needs to be disregarded from a scientific perspective, because with the stuff with all of you, we know the archives are coming in the platform, but it's also this thread um, trends research that is like sort of validating it by responding to it, which I uh, I'm talking about and want to reiterate. But how, like, is there an obligation? Like, in your public phase, they're going to cite. Public consumers of science are going to cite these things that are published. Our kind of like one of the highest impact people and possible. So like how how do you decide to respond to it or not because it's being weaponized in legislation now and because big names within our field are implicitly validating it by extending its time in the spotlight in these recent things. Um, so the guy that we're just going to recover is the LMA team. Uh, and one of the more about like the role of psychologists, the ethical role of psychologists, and, and especially when it comes to research. I doubt that we're going to name specific journals. I don't think that's going to be approved. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, no, that's specific yeah. the specific hypotheses that are gaining traction and are not scientifically sound. This, this is an ongoing conversation that we have. We're going to name, like, we're going to bring up, I mean, we're gonna have there's gonna be a discussion about that so think yeah they will be um the extent of what is approved ultimately we'll see but we're definitely gonna bring up like the need to uh as the role of psychologists and not only advocating the whole the, the guidelines have been written in a form that everything that's included is gender affirming and, and we're taking a gender affirming stand so and, and based on science so anything that is not even if it's been published in the peer review and it's not gender affirming 
we do have to acknowledge it, but also acknowledge how it goes, like how it like it doesn't contribute to the art. Uh, and we, yeah, we're gonna critique it because it doesn't contribute to the extent the extent that we have taken throughout each of the guidelines. So like, uh, so that's one way, one of the um, an answer to one of your question. The other one is like um, the reality is that we're gonna finish writing a, the full draft by August probably. But as we mentioned, this is not gonna be published until uh, uh, 2025 most likely because it's gonna go. We're expecting to go through many multiple rounds of, of uh, revisions. So. Um, Ultimately, APA has to approve it, but before that, there's going to be we want we want to get feedback from community, we want to get feedback from external or professional, we want to get feedback from the uh, from the public. So it is going to go through uh, multiple uh, revisions. Yeah, I guess. But my question is not about the revision process; it's about the approval process. Like, what is the approval process? Um, I don't have the I don't have with me. I mean, I can share that. I mean, just like we have a timeline that includes all of that, uh, but ultimately there's like m multiple bodies on APA that are gonna be involved in the, in the approval process. We also have to go uh, to different stakeholders, including the legal team, and um, so, yeah, so ultimately it's gonna be, and then it's gonna come back to us about, like, we're expecting this because we know what happened in the first one, like some of the language that can be included, like I, the example that I used earlier was the, the, even the word advocacy was something that was not in, approved in 2015, but now it, it will be. So like we were expecting some of that to happen. So that's what we all, um, our, our um, timeline includes uh, some of this uh, enough time to be able to address that as well. I'll just add that APA has tasked us with creating this. So it's not like we're creating this and like, hey, APA, will you accept it? Yeah. So. So they have put us together, are giving us the, the staff support, the, you know, all the support that we need to create them. I think the, the revisions upon revisions upon revisions and legal counsel and, and everyone approving are those final steps, but, but we have been tasked to create them and APA wants us to create them. I think the, the finer points are like what words can be included, how, you know, how exactly things like advocacy get included or not are, are more of a question at the ending point, but APA has tasked us to do this. Yeah. I just wanted to say, you know, we are trying to be thoughtful about how to deal with um, when people put things out as if they are psychiatric diagnoses that have a large evidence base and that they're not. Um, you know, do we talk about it more to give it more airtime? This is just, you know, honestly, and looking for feedback from you all. So if you have thoughts on like what you would personally like to see in a guideline, that would be helpful. How to balance that, not giving it too much airtime to sort of legitimize it more, even though um, somebody might be talking about how it's not a psychiatric diagnosis, or like here's the sort of context or the methods for how people wrote those articles. Um, you know, I, I think it's a fine line to walk, um, and it's not just the guidelines group that's thinking about this right now. Um, APA um, put on their website, there is a working group um, for what's going on with trans youth, working on doing a review of the evidence base that is sort of working to address that as well. Um, but yeah, and I do think, you know, if people are members of APA or other professional organizations and want to make um, their voices heard to say like we we need um responses to this and your thoughts about how you would do that i mean yeah like right now later you know open to hearing it 
guidelines are important in setting a cultural standard, but don't have much power in terms of um, really no power in terms of enforcement. Um, which means that, in my opinion, the negative statements that you make are probably even more important than positive statements that you make, because those are the things that you can take a stance on without forcing anyone to do anything. So actually, maybe I understand uh, all of your point, Dr. Lewis. Um, um, around not giving things more airtime, but to me this is probably the most important place to say the APA does not, in its considered scientific opinion, does not view this to be legitimate science. Like that, that will carry, in my opinion, a lot of weight because, you know, in a lawsuit or something, no one can say, um, no one can point to this document and say, you didn't give me this care because it's not, a, it's not a standard. But they will be able to say, the APA has explicitly said that this is not, it's not best practice. And that is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I want to clarify, I don't think, so it has a rotten foundation. Are they a star in Florida Anything that has come after it on the basis of that paper or based on ROVD is trying to develop a theory that is founded in a bad article. So, I, I, my engagement, I gave a talk to some in case you just evidence that we talk about this whole case. It's just created the root. You write the paper, you write the two biotrains, you go by not taking the biotrains, not talking about supporting trains for no reason, but just saying, like, methodologically, this is not science. Leave it there in response to that strategy for how instead of extending beyond the five papers that Jeff Turbin published in every journal, and this new one that was basically somebody's like, you know, I'm just saying I hate trans people in the archives. I don't address those because they come from a poisonous view. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did just want to say, um, if you haven't seen the CAPS statement in response to ROGD, a lot of professional orgs signed on. Did, did, did AP or did 44 sign? I feel like did 44 did. Okay, so that is. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> division 44 is the division of the APA that's for the psychology of sexual orientation and gender diversity. So APA has different divisions, but you know, if, if an APA division signs on to something, you can say like this is something that you know an APA division is signed on to. So in the meantime, you know, that's an important um, document to be aware of. Oh boy. Sorry, I realized you were trying to trying to signal to stop, and I was like, "What is he it's doing?" It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't sure how much more of that I could stomach without jumping in and, and defending uh, Dr. Lippman. And so they're obviously referencing two papers. They're referencing Dr. Lippman's original paper where she developed the terminology rapid onset gender dysphoria and a hypothesis of social contagion, and referencing Dr. Bailey's recent article. Um, in a Springer journal, which um, 
offered sort of further um, investigation into their ROGDD phenomenon that's been now retracted due to activist pressure over a technicality on his methodology. And yet, so basically, where do we start? Basically, they, they're ripping apart any research that doesn't fit their narrative as pseudoscience, but they don't seem to mind that every you know, shitty paper that Jack Turbin churns out based on a single, you know, survey da data that's very, a very flawed data set. And he turns out paper after paper after paper using that flawed data, data set. But because he's churning out, act basically they're activist papers, churning out a narrative using this false data, they don't seem to mind that actual pseudo pseudoscience. They're, they're very keen to, to discredit um, this idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria, but one thing they put, they said in there was that it's this um, false psychiatric diagnosis. And I want to clarify that Dr. Lippman did not intend for rapid onset gender dysphoria to be a psychiatric diagnosis. It's not, she doesn't intend for that to sit alongside gender dysphoria in the DSM as a separate or a subcategory of gender dysphoria. She coined that term to to refer to a social phenomenon not a psychiatric diagnosis. And I just hear that over and over and over again, that she's created this false psychiatric diagnosis, but that was never her intention. Again, it's back to the language. They want to get rid of the term because then they can discount the phenomenon. You know, they're, they're clearly not interested in discussing, well, what is going on with these um, young people who didn't necessarily have any signs of gender dysphoria prior to puberty? Um, and most of them are, are uh, girls. And all of a sudden, it's a skyrocketing um, group that, um, you know, would would rather not be the the sex they were assigned at birth. And, and so what's going on with that? They seem to lack any curiosity at all. All they want to do is banish us from using the term. Yeah. And yet trans people like, you know, on YouTube or all over the place use terms like trans trenders and these different terms to reference basically the same phenomenon. Mm. I think the, the community knows full well that these trans trenders exist. It's just that Littman is now kind of studying them and, and rather than calling them trans trenders, you know, is calling them ROGD. But the, the community knows full well that these people exist. And I remember when our um, conversion therapy law was being debated in Parliament here in Canada, um, I got pulled into a conversation on Twitter with a very high profile trans activist um, in Canada who admitted to me that, you know, she spent a great deal of political capital on getting that that law written and passed. And in that conversation, um, we were talking about, you know, this cohort of young people who have adopted, you know, this queer theory way of thinking. And they're the ones, you know, with the blue hair and the piercings and this, this subculture, youth subculture has developed. And in that conversation, she admitted she knows full well that they exist and that that's happening. And her advice when I said, well, parents are concerned about those kids. Parents are concerned when those kids are adopting the subculture and then are actually getting hormones and surgeries. And this trans activist told me those parents, as she said, it's no different than flower power and those parents should just roll with it. Wow. I kept screenshots of that conversation. So these high profile trans activists know full well that kids are getting wrapped up in this queer theory bullshit and are get accessing hormones and surgeries who have, have no gender dysphoria at all whatsoever. 
and they're being told just roll with it because he's parent. And I, so I said, well, are you willing to say that to an actual parent? So I pulled in this parent that I know whose kid thought got caught up in that subculture has since desisted has no, you know, is, is completely moved on from a trans identity, but came very close to being started on hormones because when they took this child to, um, I think it was sick kids hospital, they were willing to start medical treatment on the spot. And this, and they felt that was too fast. So they said, well, we want more time to think about this and process it. And then the kid just moved on from that identity. And, and so I pulled that parent into the conversation with this activist. And I said, well, you tell this parent to their face that they should have just rolled with it. And this activist basically told the dad that they were a bigot for not affirming their kid. Wow. That's just so it's, it's it's absolute willful ignorance that this is happening to children and you know we can't blame parents or other concerned people who see this phenomenon happening we can't blame this you know this um backlash on the trans community when trans activists are willfully blatantly openly just ignoring that those children are being harmed and it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that, that we're protecting this machine that has been created. We're not protecting individuals, including trans people, who are going to experience a huge backlash from the amount of children that are being harmed by this. That's right. Well put. Well interjected, too. I was, I was like, how are we going to tackle every bit of this, of this, of this, this Littman assault? But you, you handled it all. Nice. All right. And there's just, I mean, just a, you know, just a quick thing about the methodology of both of those studies, Littman's and, and Bailey's. I mean, there was nothing unusual about their methodology in other areas of, of scientific research, medical research, you know, mental health research talking to parent and getting parent reports on different symptoms that they're seeing and observing that's not none of that is unusual in research so there was there was no method methodological flaw in the, in the research yep they just have to have to shut down any attention to it yeah time you know that's an important um, document to the world like this. Hi, Elliot. Um, so, uh, yeah, just to address your point, you know, what does APA do that actually does have to be? Not, not a whole heck of a lot if we're being just honest, right? We're not a licensing board. APA is not a licensing board. Um, APA, I mean, APIC is the one that kind of enforces our accreditation standards for the most part, right? So, what the point of the guidelines is that kind of aspirational piece. But, and again, I would encourage anybody who cares about this issue deeply and as a psychologist to contact ABA, um, is that we need this resolution. We need this resolution because though, that is the type of document that is really structured to address exactly what you're saying, is that, you know, we don't do this. This isn't right. I guess I just want to go back. The APA does have a lot of power, and that's why the first question I asked is about the uh, Council of Accreditation. Yeah. Because that is where the power of the APA lies. You are able to determine the APA through the COA, which is technically, you know, semi-separate from the policy body, it is able to deem um, legitimate doctoral programs, internships, postdoctoral. That is a lot of power, right? And it's able to say you are not a legitimate um, accredited educational program if you do not cover certain things, right? So that that
but a lot of state um, licensure requirements point back to the COA requirements. So I actually don't agree with you. I think that the APA on the, on the policy side, I agree, does not have a lot of power. All of the power, in my view, lies in the accreditation you're absolutely right. I mean, this is more of a personal experience, but we haven't really worked closely with the accreditation outside of APA. But I'm, from my total training, it was it seemed to me that it's more focused. Uh, there is obviously, you need, in order to get accredited, you need to have like a focus on diversity, and there needs to be more emphasis on race and ethnicity, and then everything else is a little more like leeway on what counts. So a lot of things get approved. So I do think we need to be more clear. Uh, on what 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 needs to what needs to be covered for that to be uh, approved. So yeah, I agree with that. With you. I also think the the resolutions are the you know there's a resolutions on uh, there's two specifically that I think about on not um, having sexual orientation change efforts or gender identity change efforts and those carry even more weight. You know these are aspirational, but those resolutions say this is what as a governing body as an APA that we are saying yes or no to. And so I think that's where the, you know, really coming back to a resolution on what is the current state of the research and how do we support trans kids. Um, there are a bunch of folks who got together and wrote some things and I hear it's awesome, I haven't seen it, but I don't think we will see it because it, it takes us so long to get through legal counsel. But if you would like to see it and are a member of the APA, feel free to ask them. <laughs> the draft? Um, no, I need to get it through. Oh, it's good. Oh, yeah. the process of doing that. A resolution No, of supporting that. Because you know, for me, the comfort bill. Do you know Ron? Do you know Ron? Uh, Ron Slatter? Yeah. Well, I think. You didn't email that. You didn't email that. <laughs> I mean, um, so I think just saying honestly, what are your concerns? Um, what do you need the APA to address? So what's going on for you? And if that overlaps with efforts that are ongoing at the APA and can, you know, grease the wheels a little bit, I'm um, just saying like, you know, or like I work with youth or I work with trans people, I'm concerned about this. I need guidance around this. You're my professional organization. Please put something forth. Um, and create some momentum to respond to these concerns. Hi there. Um, this is a little bit of a deviation from the from the focus here, but um, I've heard in a lot of dis the different panels that um, gender exploratory therapy is essentially conversion therapy. Um, can you maybe? I think maybe I don't quite understand what gender exploratory therapy is, and I'm wondering if you can maybe describe it. Yeah, so the question, I, I realize that we're having some uh, noisy neighbors. Um, I'm only here having a great time. The question was about um, gender identity change efforts or like gender exploratory therapy and like why that is similar uh, or how that is similar maybe to um, change efforts. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. it's been described as essentially a different way of, um, a, a different word, right, for conversion therapy. Um, so. Before gender exploratory therapy kind of became a catchphrase, we had therapy that was for the exploration of gender, including with youth. Exploring your gender is not a bad thing. And I just, I just want to say that very clearly. Um, 
So, you know, there's, there's I think, a difference between sort of open-ended, like, what's your journey? What's your process? How are you learning about who you are? You know, what are you finding makes you feel more comfortable? What doesn't feel right to you? Um, versus what sort of, I mean, we're, we're thinking way back to like Sandor Rado and psychoanalysis and conversion therapy. Um, that's really, this is discussed really well in a paper by um, Florence Ashley interrogating gender exploratory therapy. Um, and I recommend reading it. So thinking about the history of that. So what, what, is, what is a gender identity change effort? Um, and how do we distinguish that between open-ended exploration? Um, and so uh, conversion therapy is we come from a basis of um, differences pathological. So to be queer, to be trans, et cetera, is a bad thing, um, or an outcome we don't want. And so, you know, uh, in that paper, um, Ashley discusses, you know, okay, does therapy stop if somebody identifies as cis, and why is that? Um, you know, is, is the goal really to see that if, if somebody could be cis, you know, would, would they, could we encourage somebody to be cis and say that that is better than being gender diverse in some way or being trans. Um, so uh, that really, uh, it's really actually fairly simple, I think in some ways to sort of differentiate that, to say, um, you know, is this an open-ended process of led by a client? And I'm not saying the client is making all their decisions with their minor, right? This is in collaboration with like physicians and caregivers and things like that. It's, a, it's an iterative, long-term process. We're talking with medical intervention, that's not what I mean. I mean, when you're in the room with the therapist, is the therapist saying, this is who you should be? Um, this is a better way to be? Um, being gender diverse is wrong or it's less good um, than being cis? Um, or is it about like any way that you could be is fine? Like it's okay to be gender diverse in all these different ways. Um, and you know, is it about like discovering who you are in this joyful way versus I am going to sort of um, like uh, interrogate you to figure out um, if there's a way that you could be cis instead. I don't watch this Like the Amsterdam model. Their goal is to find you, find a path of potentially more medical choices. Like it's like they have a goal and what you do. Gender exploratory therapy. It's one of those things where it was, I think, cleverly named and cleverly coined to confuse people to think that, like, Therapists are encouraging exploration of gender. So this thing called gender exploratory therapy must be supported by them, must be good, um, but it's not. So it's kind of, I view it as very clever, like evil clever marketing. Because um, yeah. it is different than exploring gender versus this thing Actually, of the gender affirming model. Yeah. Right, right. So that's, that's kind of, I think, where the, the language and the semantics can get really confusing and really insidious in some ways. And I mean, yeah, you don't have to sort of take our word for it. I think if somebody reads, they, they put out, not to say that I think everybody should be reading these manuals that aren't necessarily evidence-based, but if, if you do read the gender exploratory therapy manual, like at a certain point, you're noticing like, hmm, interesting, like there's this sort of um, assumption of pathology. All therapy is exploratory. All therapy is
So, um, firstly, uh, like working for a, a system that we're always trying to establish policy and procedures, I find this very helpful on a much larger scale because there is not something so comprehensive from what I've seen that exists for providing behavioral health care. So, just overall, I think it's really helpful. What I'm curious about is, obviously, only you know a portion of folks that provide behavioral health services are psychologists. So I'm just curious if there's already efforts and how this then intersects with social workers, therapists, etc., who are also providing you know a huge amount of the direct service to folks, and how we can, as not psychologists, because there's a lot of you know talk about how psychologists can support this. What is like a, you know like a collective way, right? That because I think we're all we all have the same goal. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that or. So yeah, so so we are writing this with psychologists in mind because we're writing for APA, but right. we're very well aware that these are being used by other disciplines as well. So like we've been told by the first iteration is being used by social workers and as I mentioned earlier, not only by different disciplines, but also different countries. So even though this is like based in the US based, it's being used for other places that there's no guidance. So it's been, uh, so we, we're keeping that in mind as we write it so it's applicable to, to, to other uh, disciplines as well. Uh, and I think with that, we want to thank everyone for coming and all your comments. Thank you. And we are available, I will also note, we are available. Feel free to find any of us, um, email us if you have other thoughts that come yeah. up or like, hey, how can we get this into the guideline? Like, just, yeah, feel free to be in contact. Thank you. Well, I feel like we need a new term to express what gender exploratory therapy is meant to do, because that's become, you know, sort of uh, forbidden to use, like ROGD, right? Again, another yeah. phenomenon that we can't describe, you know. So when that question was asked, um, the first uh, person from the panel who responded actually sounded pretty reasonable in a sense like yeah there's room for exploration you know um you know ask questions what does this mean to you your gender but then in reality what happens is gender affirming care right and then the other another audience participant said oh no i think of gender exploratory care as what did they say evil marketing an evil marketing term so um, in fact, you know, there's no exploration with gender affirming care. It's just, um, what do you, what do you think? What do you feel? Who do you want to be? Okay, great. You know, that's, that's it. So where is, um, is there another term we could use? Like, could we, you know, and it's like gatekeeping, right? It's in that same category. Like we need new language to say what's, what's really going on. Like, like I, I envision like, therapists holding a person especially like a young person in this holding space you know and so instead of gatekeeping is it that you're actually prematurely ushering them through a door that they shouldn't go through you know that they yeah. won't be able to go back you know like we need a new vision somehow a new way of expressing what's happening because these words are just things that people just um, immediately react to when they close their ears 
Yeah. You know, it's funny because at, at the same time that they're always reinventing new words to mean things, they're also, when it comes to gender affirming care and those words, what they've actually done is they've changed the meaning but kept the words. Mm. Because, you know, back when when uh, Dr. Laura Edwards Lieber brought gender affirming care for young people to North America or to the United States at least, um, it meant something very differently back then than it does now so what what they mean now so and and this is why it's so so frustrating because there's so many different meanings for these terminologies and and then we're debating based on how we interpret those words but different people in the debate might be using those words differently so what the, these activists mean by gender affirming care i think is better described as the informed consent only model mm. Because the gender affirming care in its in its original form was about exploration. It just it just meant that it was it meant that you still that the therapist still had a supportive stance that they didn't see transition as an awful outcome, but it didn't mean confirmation that they actually had gender dysphoria. So it was about building a relationship of trust and rapport with with the client and not immediately saying, well, no, you know, what you're experiencing is bad or awful and needs to change. But there was still thorough, comprehensive assessment, exploratory psychotherapy, and, you know, an exploratory approach before medicalizing young people. So that that's what gender, and and so really gender exploratory therapy is really just a new term for what the affirmation model used to be because activists have completely changed what gender affirming care means, but they're still using that term. So we had to have another word or another term to describe an exploratory approach because gender affirming care no longer means exploration. So it just frustrates me in the public debates when you know some, you know the more the concerned public is using gender affirming care to mean no gatekeeping, just you know, um, just immediately medicalize anyone that wants these interventions. So that's how they're using gender affirming care, and so it, it's just it's becoming so messy because we're we're kind of throwing things, throwing mud back and forth but not agreeing on what these terminologies mean. And I think we need to kind of dump some of these terminologies and just be very clear and specific about what we're talking about is medicalizing young people with no assessment, no exploration of their identity of development and how they came to this conclusion. And that's what we're talking about, right? That's what we're concerned about is, is the elimination of any kind of safeguarding or diagnosis or safe, you know, safekeeping as, as Buck Angel would say. Right. So while these, so that's why it's so frustrating. These activists are saying, no, we support gender affirming care. We don't support exploratory therapy. It's like, well, gender affirming care used to be all about exploratory therapy. So they're demonizing something that used to be a part of the care that they say that they support. And they, they've kind of, yeah. Like a you made a, yeah, yeah, and you made a good point in in a previous episode, Aaron. That that basically they're substituting. It used to be gatekeeping was the dirty word, and now they're calling it conversion therapy. And I think they mean the same thing, right? It's mm -hmm. it's yep. 
the gatekeeping maybe wasn't strong enough a word for them to use. And now they're calling it conversion therapy. Right. And so they think, you know, do any, any attempt and they're very clear, um, like that's what they meant there is like any attempt to find out where these gender feelings are coming from is an attempt to change a trans person into a cis person. So it's a change effort. Um, when really, obviously that's not at all what's going on, but they have to reframe it into their, into, into yeah, that dichotomy that, that they need. Yeah. And the way that our conversion therapy laws, and I think a lot of these conversion therapy laws that are popping up are worded in a similar way. Ours is worded in a way that says, you know, basically any attempt to change an identity to cis. So what does that mean? I mean, does that mean any attempt to make a pedophile not a pedophile is conversion therapy? Does that mean anyone that identifies as a frog or a cat gender or a cake gender? that any attempt to ex these exist these these new gender neo prone cake gender does exist frog gender does exist in this youth subculture so any attempt to change to tell if i were to t say to a, a young client well you're not actually a frog that's conversion therapy according to how this these conversion therapy laws are written because that would be you know trying to change someone's gender identity to a cisgender identity yep yeah, but the words all just sound so good, so it flies under the radar. Our conversion therapy, our conversion therapy law, thankfully, does have a clause that says it excludes. It basically excludes the assessment process leading up to medicalization, and it excludes an exp an exploration of someone's gender or their identity development. So oh, that, it explicitly says that? It explicitly says that. So we do have a clause that protects exploratory therapy, but the activists are work in Canada are working really, really hard because they didn't get their way with the wording of our bill. Now they're working really hard at professional associations to try to say, well, no, I mean, any, any th exploratory therapy is also conversion therapy. So they're trying to get around the legal... I don't think it would hold up in court because in court you have to go by what it says in law and we have that exclusion clause. But if they go after the professional bodies, people could lose their licenses if they convince the professional bodies that any exploration of someone's gender is conversion therapy. Wrap it up. We've been at this three hours. <laughs> yeah. Great conversation. Thank, <laughs> yeah. thank you to you both. <laughs> Thank you to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. See you next time. See you later. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.